Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one, a big one. This is a heavy script. I mean, it's as heavy as it is every week because it's on an iPad, but uh, it's lengthy. Also, this this piece of uh, this um, document is just titled Draft 10. I definitely do go back and forth with, uh, with Liam. 10 times, the, the writer for today's episode, 10 times. So this obviously had a lot of work at home for Liam. This is the trial of the century. OJ Simpson. This is a big one. OJ Simpson's still around. Uh, he's on like Twitter and he went to prison, but right for like other crimes that weren't related to the, the murder that he definitely didn't do. There's even a big importance here at the top. It says, OJ Simpson was found not guilty of the murders we are discussing. I do not claim any specific knowledge or evidence of the case we are discussing. All statements contained within this script and episode are statements of my opinion and should not be taken as any more than that. Yes, this is one of those scripts where it's going to be just fairly liberally sprinkled with allegedly's. Also, yeah, no, it's just gonna, we're just going to have to be real careful i don't i don't know a lot about the oj simpson case all i know is that a lot of people have an opinion of him being guilty right that's not my opinion i don't know maybe it'll be my opinion after this but that's all it is my opinion and not the opinion of the courts <laughs> so let's just jump in shall we if you're new to the show uh i've got a script in front of me it's by Liam. Thank you, Liam. And I've never read it before. I am somewhat ignorant of the O.J. Simpson case. I know this was a huge thing in America, but it was also... I was a kid. What was this? The 90s? Yeah, I was a kid. I didn't really follow, like, murder trials and stuff because I was a kid. And also, I think it was, you know, before, like, big international news and stuff and countries were more in their own bubbles. Like, I feel like today, like... Although the Johnny Depp trial, that was a British thing, wasn't it? Although then it became an American thing. But, so, look, I don't know. Let's just jump into it. I'm, I'm saying I don't know as much as this, as um, as much about this as many people listening do. So if I'm sounding ignorant, it's because I am ignorant. So let's go. It was just after 4 p.m. on Friday, the 17th of June, 1994, that Route 91 would become the most famous road in the world. The freeway bisected Los Angeles from San Bernardino in the east to just above Long Beach in the west. However, today, none of that would matter. The road would become host to one of the most televised events in American history, with approximately 103 Americans tuning in, which is like a third of the population. That's absolutely mental. Seven separate helicopters, each owned by different news agencies, were fighting for air rights barely a few hundred yards from the highway below. The road below them was at its all-time quietest, with only 20 police cars occupying it. Oh, and of course, one white 1993 Ford Bronco. Driving that car was famous American football player and actor who, in only a few weeks' time, would stand trial for several felonies. That's right, the man was Al Cowlings, also known as A.C. Cowlings, a man who had struck on a bit of rough luck recently. His best friend, O.J. Simpson, had recently been accused of a brutal double homicide and now is being accused of aiding and abetting a fugitive, mainly because he was. In the back of the car was the man, the mystery, the glove enthusiast, or in fall, James Simpson. 
glad he's called oj because orin fall is tricky the six foot one former athlete had that morning been charged with two counts of murder in the first degree for the killings of his ex-wife nicole brown simpson and her friend ronald lyle goldman promptly upon being informed of these charges he reached out to his lawyer robert shapiro infamous for being the lawyer to the stars after this shapiro arranged for over a dozen doctors and psychiatrists to swarm the house where oj was being kept the house of robert kardashian after the examinations of the doctors oj somehow without any of the doctors his lawyer or his friends noticing snuck out of the house and into the waiting white bronco of ac cowlings from there oj told ac he couldn't handle it anymore and ac needed to take him home so that he could speak to his mother so now we return to the scene of oj in the bronco it's easy to imagine how the sweltering heat only made the stressful situation worse oj was one of the most famous athletes turned actors of the entire 20th century and now he risked losing everything as the chase dragged on oj passed several supporters who had set up on the overpasses of the freeway those supporters were carrying signs such as we love you oj or F pigs you know the normal things you say to support celebrity accused of double murder journalists also flooded the scene to question these supporters finding out that most of them didn't necessarily support oj but more just hated the lapd as oj sat in the back seat wondering what would happen for the rest of his life the phone rang on the other end was detective philip venata one of the leading investigators into the murders by all accounts oj firstly apologized for the drama that had been created never wanting to cause a disruption oj now asked venata whether he would be allowed to drive home and he told him that he wanted to call his mother one last time the detective who would later be called a rabid racist by the defense pleaded with oj for his life telling him that he knew it looked bad now but things would improve and that nobody wanted oj to end it wait he was threatening to kill himself i didn't get that at this point oj cocked the gun placing it to the root of his mouth and the record scratched the camera zoomed past the understandably stressed ac and straight to oj's still face looking right into the camera oj said yep that's me you're probably wondering how i got into the situation okay okay so maybe that last bit was an embellishment by me but the remainder of this entire story feels more like a tv drama than it does reality so i think it fits now are you ready to hear about the story that spawns not only the 24-hour news cycle the media's appetite to cover every second of a celebrity in any type of court and the eldritch horrors known as the kardashians well then let's begin because in today's episode we're going to be taking a look at the murder trial of oj simpson chapter one a task for the audience today's casual criminalist is going to take a rather different approach to normal i would normally set out the facts that we know happens by looking at the police reports coroner's reports and any reports made by judges or other judicial officers now there's a problem with this case though is oj simpson is legally not a murderer and that's the only type of not that matters that's right i somehow talked fact boy into letting me do a casual criminalist on a man who is technically innocent or at least not guilty those are two very different things although it's not that simple oj was found not guilty by a jury of his peers in interviews given by the jurors following the case many came to doubt the validity of the jury's decision wait the jury was doubting the jury's decision 
<laughs> oh god to make the matter even more complex on the 5th of february 1997 a lawsuit was brought forward by the parents of ron goldman in this lawsuit a different jury found oj liable for the wrongful deaths that he had just been found not guilty of this serves to highlight several points about this case firstly nobody can agree on what actually happened secondly and importantly for dear old simon to the standard of evidence which is used in defamation trials oj simpson has been shown to have killed nicole brown simpson and ronald goldman meaning we don't need to use as much allegedly in this episode at least not for oj so now that i've covered our legal basis how am i going to cover a case where the only thing people can agree on is that they don't agree with anyone about it well that was easy i'm giving the hard job to you the audience i'm going to first outline the key people in this case meaning oj himself the two victims the important lawyers the judge and the police officers involved whilst doing this i'm also going to cover all of the evidence that is uncontroverted in this case then i'm going to outline the prosecution's case and the defense case as it was presented at trial finally i'm going to touch on what happens with the real jury and a small little book that oj edgar and write which some have taken as a confession after that i'm going to ask you to decide whether you think oj is guilty or not guilty of the murders that he was accused of so audience today you're like the jury on the oj trial let's go now i get this is a far different style to what we normally do on this channel normally we tell the story with a focus on the victims unfortunately in this case the story of the trial has dominated the textbooks ever since ac's white bronco hit the tv screen so instead of honoring the victims in our normal way i've decided to attempt to honor them by ensuring that i give you all the information i can to make all of you mini experts on this case it's obvious that i do have a bias as shall become clear but regardless i am going to present the prosecution case and the defense case as it was presented to give each side a fair shot as part of this fair shot i also ask that you all wait until you've heard everything i have to say before coming to your decisions i would also appreciate it if people could make sure to comment here or on reddit or wherever they listen to the podcast and let us know what you think of this new style now without further ado let's begin the story of oj simpson and how he brutally murdered two people allegedly <laughs> i know he's rooming in the defamation thing but i just want it you just want to throw in that allegedly like murder of two people according to the later lawsuit not the criminal lawsuit about the actual murder <laughs> i'm just gonna i'm just gonna put in the allegedly where i feel like i know that you're the lawyer liam but i'm still like nervous because i'm the one putting this out there Chapter 2 Gathering the Oranges Before we begin the discussion of the case, we must first ask the question of who is OJ Simpson? And importantly, is he litigious? <laughs> we also have to understand. Leah, what are you doing to my life, mate? You also have to understand how big OJ's name was. His fame was the singular reason that so much of the trial would turn out to be far more like a reality show than a serious court which was trying to solve the murders of two innocent people. OJ was born 9th of July 1947 to Eunice Simpson, a hospital administrator. His father, Jimmy Lee Simpson, was a local chef and a well-known local drag queen. Jimmy would separate from Eunice in 1952, meaning OJ would grow up in a single-parent family in the 1950s. 
1950s. OJ's early life was not an easy one, not a hard statement to make for an African-American growing up in the 1950s. To make matters worse, soon after birth, OJ would be diagnosed with rickets. Rickets is a debilitating illness that develops from a person's lack of certain vitamins in their diet. It was an illness that, at the time, was strongly associated with the African-American community. This condition itself weakens a person's bones, resulting in easily broken and often bendy bones. This was most pronounced on OJ through the bending of his femurs, which resulted in OJ's gait being described as bow-legged. OJ's condition was so aggressive that he had to use leg braces until he was five. Luckily, though, the usage of these braces prevented any more permanent damage. It also wasn't until the age of five that OJ even knew his name as Orenthal. He only found out when a teacher read his name out on the register. Up till then, he'd believed his name was OJ. OJ grew up in Potrero Hill neighborhood of San Francisco, California, which at the time was a predominantly working-class neighborhood. Marguerite Simpson, his childhood sweetheart and future wife, would describe OJ as a really awful person at that time, which was partly due to his involvement in the Persian Warriors street gang. His childhood sweetheart described him as a really awful person. Why were they childhood sweethearts? He was a horrible man that I loved. It was this involvement with the Warriors that would lead to his life-changing decision. OJ, at various points throughout his childhood, was arrested. This included one stint of incarceration at the San Francisco Youth Guidance Center. It was at a meeting arranged by this center that OJ met the famed baseball player Willie Mays. I've heard of Willie Mays, which is unusual for me because I don't follow sports, especially American sports. Mays was the first player in history to hit 30 home runs in an all-star game. As a Brit, I have no clue what that means, but I do get the impression that it might be a tad impressive. Yeah, I've also like, okay. <laughs> okay, good. Good job with that achievement of 30 home runs. Especially to a working-class teenager on the wrong side of the law who had a major sporting interest. Chapter 3 Creating the Juice OJ would go on to describe how his discussion with Mays led to him making a decision to go clean. As a result, in 1965, OJ graduated from the Galileo Academy of Science and Technology and doled around for a few months. At one point, he apparently considered joining the army to fight in Vietnam. This was until an unnamed friend talked him out of this choice and instead convinced OJ to enroll at the City College of San Francisco. This wouldn't be the last time OJ would be involved with military training, though. From there, he would then move to the University of Southern California, USC, where OJ would begin breaking records. For both of his years at USC, 1967 and 1968, OJ would score the highest in both yards and touchdowns nationally. In 1967, he was considered as a runner-up for the Heisman Trophy, and in 1968, he'd finally receive it. Now, to any non-Americans, such as both me and Simon, the Heisman may be a completely new thing that you've never encountered. Indeed, no idea what that is. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it right. As such, I did also research the trophy, and apparently, and apologies if I get something wrong, it is awarded to the most outstanding player of American football each year, as long as that player is west of the Mississippi. OJ was even more notable because the margin he won the trophy by would be the largest margin for 51 years. That is impressive, so he's good at this sport, hmm? I also feel I should pause at this point to explain just how significant American football and sports are in general in America. Now, I might not know much about sports, and I might not know much about America, but I do know that sports are big. Like, people love sports. Like, sports has never been a part of my culture. Like, growing up and stuff, it was never a thing. 
But in America, it's like sports is a big deal, like in school, in university. In school, in university, for me, sports was something I had to do and that some people enjoyed and some didn't. And then at university, I just didn't even think about sports. But in America, it's like this like college football and where like it's a huge thing and people go to university on scholarships just because they're good at sports. It's like, what are you doing at Harvard? Um playing football it's like do you study anything no 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 not really i i some somehow i pass my classes it's very strange america in america there are very few ways to get ahead in life is that true i feel like maybe i'm like idealistic or whatever but isn't america all about like uh social mobility and stuff like i feel like countries like britain social mobility is a bit it doesn't really happen very much but in america like don't people become rich and have that american dream and 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 whatnot more than like other countries is or is that just an outsider's view of like idealized america i don't know however one of those few ways is sports which can catapult you from any economic background to the upper echelons of american society as such even though he hadn't left university oj was already making a name for himself a brand he would grow over the preceding years i want to clarify that that is not a hot take but it is a commonly held perception oj would make history again in 1969 when he went pro signing with the buffalo bills for six hundred and fifty thousand dollars which is it's a lot of money now but it's a lot more money in the 1960s this was the largest contract ever signed in american professional sports up to that point and began the trend we still see today of ludicrous amounts of money being thrown about for athletes it's not ludicrous it's what the market bears like it's not like people are like randomly throwing money at athletes although shit, the saudi government and that new golf tour it's like yeah 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 sure we'll pay like this guy 150 million dollars just to come play on our tour which is utterly mental they have too much money this would not be the last record oj would slash see what i did there oj would slash oh god what am i missing <laughs> so stupid in 1973 oj would become the first player in professional history to rush over 2,000 yards which for those of us who believe football is a sport where your foot actually hits the ball i believe means he ran 2,000 combined yards that season while holding the ball okie dokie i'm not even sure a yard is like about a meter right it's like almost a meter that's quite far simpson's sporting career would last all the way up until 1978 when an injury would put an early end to his season he would retire the next year with his final game being played on december the 16th 1979. six years later oj would be placed into the pro football hall of fame and in 2019 he would controversially be named in the national football league's 100th anniversary all-time all-star team it was also while playing sports that oj would receive the name juice this became a well-used nickname that he was so well known by that it would even appear on court documents sports was only half of the coin here though it had gotten oj's name into a few households in the 70s it was his acting career who would get it into households for the next decade and beyond and also provide him all the practice that he'd need for the murders to come allegedly oj had been acting for as long as he had been in professional football that is actually how he got his record-breaking offer from the bills using leverage from being an actor he would describe the moment that changed it all though in 1974. while filming the movie the clansman oj reported that he saw lead actors lee marvin and richard burton place an order for chili from beverly hills's famous chasen's restaurants which on the face of it doesn't sound that impressive it was the fact that the two actors had the chili delivered by private jet that got oj's attention holy this is like super gangster in the 1970s today though 
they would never publicize this or this would never come out because it would be like bro that is terrible for the environment and now we hate you whereas back in the 70s it was like gangster that's a baller ash right there and i'm still kind of like that is sick even though i know how bad it is for the environment i'm still like that's pretty that's pretty cool i don't think anyone could deny that it's cool even if it's terrible for the environment it's still cool he would go on to describe how that singular moment made him decide that he wanted a change of career it's very cool how he is a he's a movie star and also an athlete at the same time it's not like he became an ath- a movie star because of his career as an athlete it's just he seems to be doing these two things at the same time which is fairly awesome i have to say i didn't even know he was an actor like i don't really i really don't know much about this as a result oj would go on to start in several films with the highlights being 1974's towering inferno and the entire naked gun trilogy which first released in 1998 and at its final release in 1994 three months before the murders i've seen none of these movies naked guns that comedy one right with the dude with the white hair which everyone is going to go nuts for me not knowing his name um but anyway doesn't matter the movies made him a household celebrity and now they were going to make him a celebrity trained in slashing throats what <laughs> did he do like some stunt like i don't because i've not seen the movies i assume in towering inferno because that sounds like more like a throat slashing movie that he had to be trained how to slash someone's throat jesus i feel like if, if i was being directed and they were like okay simon then what we want to do is you have you over, go over there and slash that person's throat I'll be like, I've seen enough movies to vaguely idea and know how it happens. <laughs> do, I re- do, do you really need to train your actors to be like, well, what you want to do is really get in deep with that knife. <laughs> it's like Daniel Day-Lewis be like, I've slashed thro- so many throats in preparation for this role. <laughs> oh, God, Daniel. The most significant project which OJ starred in for our purposes was the 1994 show Frogmen. Now, any fans of OJ may be confused as no such show was ever released. That is because NBC made the decision to cancel the show after the trial began. In the show, OJ would play the leader of a team of Navy SEALs in a similar structure as the A-Team, with weekly adventures and hijinks being thrown into the mix. However, this was not the chilling part. That show actually sounds like a bit of a laugh. I'd probably watch that. <laughs> the key evidence came to light when the prosecution uncovered details of this show in documents found at the Simpson address. They discovered that not only had OJ received training in hand-to-hand fighting for the show from real-life Navy SEALs, but that the exact knife that they suspected was used in the killing was the exact make and model of knife that OJ was trained with. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, really? You, you, that That's what you chose? The knife being a rare SEAL-exclusive knife which was also specially produced for the TV show. Although not impossible to come by on the civilian market, these knives were certainly considered rare. Now you might be thinking at this point, how could any jury acquit after hearing that? I don't know, I'm also thinking reasonable doubt's a super powerful thing and that is not nearly enough evidence, although it's like mad suspicious. Well that's because they never heard that. The prosecution decided to never bring this evidence before the jury. Why not? It's very persuasive. While they never actually explained their reason beyond the fact that TV shows were fiction. Wait, what? That's got nothing to do with it. (laughs) Of course TV shows are fiction, but he really acted in them. It's not like him acting in the TV show was fiction. That happens. Uh, We refer to this in the law business as a cock-up. Yeah, no bugging kidding. Oh my god. Chapter 4. She was a girl, he was a water boy. Oh, and he was a girl. Da-da-da-da-da. Who's that? Avril Lavigne? Is that Avril Lavigne? I think so. At trial, one story was told again and again. That is the story 
of O.J. Simpson, but that isn't how we do it here at Casual Criminalist. I want to make sure to tell you the story of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman, the latter of whom is often forgotten by many people when telling the story of this case. To anybody playing my game of did O.J. do it or not, I'd also advise you to pay particularly close attention to what I write about Nicole, as I will be covering the ordeal she went through that was her relationship with O.J. This has also been proven in court, so no need for any allegedly's here either. Nicole was born in Frankfurt, West Germany on the 19th of May 1959 to a German mother and an American father, both of whom survived her. Not much is known about her early life other than the fact that she moved to America shortly before starting education at Rancho Alamitos High School in Garden Grove, California. She graduated from high school in 1976 and met Simpson in 1977 while working as a waitress at the Daisy, a Beverly Hills private club. At the time of their meeting, Nicole was 18 and OJ was both 30 and also married to his pregnant first wife, Marguerite. Simpson and Marguerite would divorce two years later in 1979, but by all accounts, O.J. and Nicole had been in a relationship since shortly after meeting. O.J. had alleged in interviews that he was introduced to Nicole with the express purpose of entering into a relationship with her by his manager. Nicole and O.J. would marry on the 2nd of February 1985, and their marriage would last five years. What? Why would your manager be like, okay, what are we going to do? Is we're really thinking about your image here, OJ, as a sportsman and a movie star. So we want you to divorce your pregnant wife and get married to this waitress. That's going to be a good look for your career, OJ. No manager would ever say this. That's the sort of thing a manager would hear about and they'd go, Have you lost your mind? <laughs> they would have two children together whilst married. Throughout their marriage, OJ abused Nicole several times, culminating in an arrest in 1989 when OJ was charged with spousal abuse. OJ entered a NOLO CONTENDIERE plea. Okay, <laughs> fancy with a Latin there, I've never heard of that. Meaning he claimed he was innocent, but acknowledged that he probably would be convicted on the evidence. Before sentencing, Nicole's parents convinced her to drop the charges, allegedly on the grounds that OJ had provided Nicole's father with lucrative investment options. So he bought them off. He bought off the parents. And it's like, holy sh If I was in that situation, I'd be like, yeah, cool, I'll take your investment. And uh, you. Guess where I'm going now? Court And what are you going to say? That you take back my investments that you tried to bribe me with? Because that's not going to look good for you either, is it? Because I'm going to go to the press. Because you. Um, but I guess that didn't happen. That would just be my spiteful head move. But I can be spiteful because, you know, don't beat my kids. At trial, it was noted that Nicole had called the police on OJ over a dozen times, yet he was only arrested once. Many when dealing with this appointed to numerous parties that OJ threw for the LAPD in his garden or the numerous fundraisers that he ran for the LAPD as a potential reason why he was only ever arrested once. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's what we call corruption. Uh, again, allegedly. I will also note that the 911 tapes of those calls were leaked to the press in the middle of the trial. And in those tapes, OJ can be heard assaulting Nicole. And out of respect for Nicole, I ask anybody researching this case to avoid them. Oh my, they must be pretty bad then. That's not nice. On the 25th of February 1992, Nicole finally divorced OJ. At this time, OJ also admitted a one-year-long extramarital affair, which he had in 1998. However, this is where we see the unfortunate reality of domestic violence. After only a few months, allegedly at the request of her parents, you are shitting me. Nicole reconciled her differences with OJ and returned to him. Who are your parents, Nicole, and why are they doing this? This is not okay. We also have a lot of information from this time about Nicole from her close friends and utter fuckface Faye Resnick. Okay, who is this? I've never heard of Faye Resnick, but to be introduced into a script as utter fuckface is uh is powerful. The reason she 
Fuckface, she published a book while the trial of OJ was ongoing, detailing very, very private details around Nicole. A lot of these are unflattering, but they do help tell the story if we can believe them. Wow. You published a book about your dead friend revealing their private details. Um, yeah, okay. I see why we used the words fuckface there, in our opinion. <laughs> Included in the book are stories about Nicole and Faye attending orgies together, doing an extremely large number of drugs, and even having lesbian sex together. Of course, there is no corroborating evidence for most of these claims, the claim surrounding drugs being the only exception. Well, this is one of those things where it's like, have you got some... This, this seems like... I guess, like, if I was her family, I'd be like, I'm gonna definitely talk to some very expensive lawyers about this situation, because that doesn't seem okay and there's no evidence whatsoever it just sounds like Faye here is trying to capitalize on her friend's death and make a little money which is uh morally pretty horrific if i'm honest Faye has since gone on to capitalize on the murder of her best friend appearing in playboy magazine real housewives and keeping up with the kardashians oh f in my opinion. The insight we gained for Faye is even harder to digest as she wrote primarily about 1993 when 13 of the 20 calls placed by Nicole to the police occurred. At this point, I want to point out that one of the most frustrating details of the O.J. Simpson case has been that literally everybody involved made a book deal as soon as they could. The worst bit is that due to the lack of any other testimony about this period, these insights from Faye are the best we have, even if the author is a human heap of garbage, in my opinion i would like to clarify that when i call this book trash it's not because i challenge its validity i call it trash because i challenge the taste of publishing a book during the murder trial of your apparent best friend which details every aspect of their private life yeah that is a that is a trashy move um i would say and also that you don't have any evidence backing this up so it does feel like okay maybe it's valid maybe it's not who knows you don't have any you don't have any evidence it's just you saying what do they call it? Hearsay? Something like that? We know from a mixture of police reports and the above-mentioned book that Nicole moved out of OJ's apartment in late 1993 after an incident in October where police were called to the scene of OJ in a furious rage, discovering that Nicole had suffered a black eye. This, like many of the calls before it, led to absolutely no charge. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? The police arrive at someone's house. There's a furious man and his wife has a black eye. How the f you're not arresting that man that is insane from there we know very little about nicole's life by most accounts she got clean cut all contact with oj and began her life anew however this new life was tragically stolen from her on the evening of sunday the 12th of june 1994 in details that we'll be covering after introducing ron goldman notably less is known about ronald lyle goldman partly due to the fact that he simply wasn't a public figure and also because the media just seemed not to care about him his father, Fred Goldman, and mother, Sharon Goldman, have been extremely vocal since the trial, decrying how the media has constantly referred to Nicole as the victim and Ronald as the unfortunate collateral. I will also cut one myth short right now. It has often been reported that Ron was Nicole's secret boyfriend. This is a matter that has never been proven, wasn't even claimed by Faye Resnick's book, and seems to only be claimed by OJ and his supporters as some sick way to justify any potential killing. I give this theory zero time, as there is no evidence 
to back it up whatsoever. Ron grew up in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, near Chicago. He later moved to California sometime in 1986, where he would pursue a career as a male model. We know from his friend Jeff Keller that Ron planned to pursue the possibility of owning his own restaurant and as a result began working at the Mezzaluna Trattoria restaurant in Brentwood. This was the same restaurant that was frequented by Nicole and OJ and was apparently where Nicole finally told OJ to never contact her again sometime in late 1993. According to a piece published in the Los Angeles Times three days after his death, Ron met Nicole only six weeks before the day they were killed, which resulted in him borrowing her Ferrari. However, when showing this Ferrari to his friends, he would stress that Nicole was only a platonic friend, something backed up by every friend of Nicole questioned by the police in the weeks that followed. So, again, it doesn't seem there's any evidence to say that they were in a relationship. In any way. Like, nothing. It's unfortunate to say that this is where the story of Ronald Goldman ended. He was young, ambitious, and by all accounts, he was making it in life. Since his death, he has been slandered, theorized about, and worst of all, he's been forgotten. If our listeners take one thing from this episode, it's that I want them to remember his name. Ronald Goldman. It's like, I. this is sad. It is sad. Like, my passing knowledge of this case, I know it was Nicole Simpson, and it was OJ Simpson, and Nicole Brown Simpson. I know we're just making an episode about her, but like I didn't know the name Ronald Goldman, and now I do, and now you do as well. Chapter 5. The 12th of June Now that we've introduced the chief suspect and the victims, we now turn our attention towards the uncontroverted facts of the case. It's time to tell the story of what we know happened on the 12th of June 1994, and of the few events we can be sure occurred before the trial. So firstly, let's cover the story of that night. On the evening of the 12th, whilst Ron Goldman was finishing his shift in Mezzaluna sometime during that evening, Nicole called. Her mother, who is often misreported to have been Nicole herself, had left her sunglasses at the table they had dined at earlier. After a brief search, it was discovered that the sunglasses were in a gutter outside the restaurant. Ron was not the waiter who had served them earlier, however, he did volunteer to drop the glasses off after work. Nicole had gone to the restaurant earlier that day, shortly after attending her daughter's dance recital, which her ex-husband OJ had also attended. After leaving the restaurant, Ron stopped by his apartment and spoke to his roommate briefly as they had plans to go out clubbing later that evening. This is the last time that Ron was ever seen alive. Sometime after midnight, a neighbor would discover a white dog strolling the streets just outside of 875 South Bundy Drive in Brentwood, the house that Nicole shared with her two children. The distressed dog would turn out to be Nicole's Akita, whose once white paws were now stained in blood. The police were called, and the first officer on the scene was Officer Robert Risk, who arrived sometime early on the 13th of June 1994. He quickly determined that there were two dead bodies on the secluded walkway leading up to the house, and he also determined that there were two children inside the house who were thankfully untouched. Officer Risk would then perform a basic investigation of the crime scene and would discover the infamous black leather glove covered in blood. This would later be misreported as being discovered by Detective Mark Furman. Now, it's important to note that this glove was witnessed not only by Officer Risk, but also by 14 other independent officers and supervisors, all of which arrived before the three detectives who would carry out the remainder of the investigation. Those detectives were Detective Mark Furman, Detective Tom Lange, and Detective Philip the Natter. Immediately upon arrival, Detective Furman would point out a bloody fingerprint that could be seen on the gate of the address. Unfortunately, this fingerprint could not be protected by any forensics team and would be destroyed before the night was through. However, it was spotted by several other officers at the scene. While at the scene, the three detectives would also observe the injuries suffered by each victim. Nicole had been stabbed seven times, and her throat had been slit so deep that she had practically been beheaded. 
She also showed defensive wounds on her wrist. Ron had been stabbed 24 times and suffered blunt force trauma wounds. He also had defensive wounds. Both were announced dead on the scene. She was 35 and he was 20 days short of his 26th birthday. Shortly after identifying the gloves and bodies, a separate officer would identify a bloody footprint and a drop of blood that was some distance from the bodies. It was the belief of the detectives that this blood was from the perpetrator. Berman had a history with Nicole. He had been called out a year earlier to investigate the potential domestic violence between OJ and Nicole. As such, he immediately informed the other detectives who Nicole's ex was. Yeah, you gotta also... The gears are gonna start turning in your brain, being like, oh, did I come to this house last year? and kind of ignore that that domestic abuse thing i don't know if it was this detective but it does seem like that was what there were 20 calls and he was arrested once i don't want to say they i don't know it does seem a bit corrupt with the parties in his garden and stuff you gotta be like uh oh it's escalated and we didn't do anything about it at this point the detectives decided to make their way to oj's rockingham house in order to notify him of the death of the mother of his children immediately upon arrival detective oh okay i'm sorry of course they're not married at this point so he wouldn't have been there so it could have been someone else there's no reason to think although it's always the husband <laughs> you know that's the meme isn't it you gotta those gears must be turning be like it maybe immediately upon arrival detective Furman inspected the white ford bronco that was left out front he as well as the other detectives noticed a blood splatter on the door of the bronco oh my god dude <laughs> at that point you gotta be like uh-oh let's uh what do they do in the movies where they just unclip that little button on the gun like you know so like you know they're just like uh, you know the the detectives like he changes his expression like click <laughs> The detectives then decided to force entry to check on the safety of OJ and fear that he may also have been a victim. That is not the first thought that would go through my mind. They would later defend their entering of the property without a search warrant under the doctrine of exigent circumstances. This allows an officer to enter a property where they reasonably believe there is risk of serious harm or risk to life. Yeah, that's completely fair. I think that's that. this seems very reasonable. Shortly after making entry, they made their way to OJ's guest house, where they met OJ's friend Kato Kalin. Kato would later become rich off his involvement in the case through deals that he secured on reality TV shows. Oh god. Of course he did. They then questioned Kato about OJ's whereabouts and were informed that Kato had no clue where Simpson was and that he hadn't seen OJ all day. That's very much in bold in my script here, so I get the feeling that that's an important fact. Let me just read it again for you guys. Cato had no clue where Simpson was, and he said he hadn't seen OJ all day. Get the feeling that's going to be important. While Vanatta and Lange questioned Cato, Furman investigated the main house. At this point, wait, <laughs> can you just poke around? I understand the exigent circumstances thing, where it's like we realize, we think, reasonably think there could be something going on in there that someone's in danger. And then it's like, okay, we found out there's no one in danger. Hey, let's just poke around the house. I'll be like, bro, what are you doing? Get out of my living room. <laughs> it's like, you broke in here to check on me. I'm fine. Now get the fuck out. <laughs> like, you can't poke around here. Come back with a search warrant. Thank you very much. At that point, he discovered another black and bloody glove in the doorway. It was later determined that this glove was the right-hand partner to the glove that was found at Nicole's house. Oh my lord, you are just littering evidence absolutely everywhere. Are you insane? Later that night, the detectives would call OJ and inform him of Nicole's death as he was in Chicago. Okay, never mind, maybe he wasn't in town. I get the feeling that this is, uh, 
Arquire was right. He informed the detectives that he would immediately book a flight back for later that day. While on this call, it was determined that OJ had booked the flight out of Chicago on the day of the murder. He had flown out about two hours after the estimated time of the murder, with the estimated time of death being around 10 p.m. and his flight being around midnight. That goes from like alibi, he's in Chicago, to instantly mad suspicious. Criminologists and the prosecution would later expressly point to the undisputed fact that when OJ was told of Nicole's death, he didn't ask how she died or about the safety of the children who he knew were in the same house as Nicole. Which is an insane thing. Like, if I was in that position and it was like my wife and kids and it was like, yeah, your wife's been murdered. I'd be like, oh, and the kids? That would be literally the first thing that possibly could it's the only thing that could come out of my mouth. Nicole would be buried on the 16th of June at the St. Martin of Tours Catholic Church in California. In attendance would be her children, several family members, family friends, and O.J. Simpson, along with his lawyers, Robert Shapiro and Robert Kardashian. Oh, yeah! Kardashian was her, like, Kardashian of the Kardashians was her, uh, was his lawyer. I totally forgot about that. Not that. I don't really know anything about the Kardashians, but I do know they're very famous. And that's a twist, isn't it? Or maybe this is why they're famous in the first place. Are they rich because their dad was a powerful lawyer to celebrities? I mean, they're rich because of all their, like, bullshit TV shows and crap now, right? But is that why they're, like, OG? Is that how it started? That's depressing. Although, I mean, that's all depressing, isn't it? Although it should be noted that Kardashian was also a close friend of Nicole, and that could have been why he attended. Ron's ceremony was kept more private, and there is no hard information on it other than internet rumors. OJ was arrested for the murder the day after the funeral, after the car chase with the authorities that we discussed way back in the intro. The white Bronco he was in was an exact replica of his own car, which had been seized for evidence on the 13th, the replica being owned by A.C. Cowlings, who was apparently a massive OJ fan. OJ would be arrested after being allowed to return to his Rockingham address and call his mother. He was allowed to call her for a full hour before being placed in cuffs. That is so weird. Like, <laughs> can you imagine just being like, living such a entire, like, privileged life? that you have like a nice custom car or whatever i don't know what a ford bronco is it sounds kind of shit but i guess it's nice because it's oj simpson he has money um like why would you call a nice car a bronco it kind of sounds like a donkey or something <laughs> i don't know what a bronco is um but you have this nice car or whatever and it's like your car gets impounded by the police it's like, i really liked my car and then you find out that a fan has just a replica of your car and it's like mate can i borrow that because i miss my car that's some privilege right there Chapter 6 Setting the Stage We will now cover the evidence that was uncovered on the run-up to the trial. This evidence is uncontroverted, but as we shall see, the process of its gathering was quite disputed. Firstly, it was discovered that there were additional blood samples found on a sock in OJ's bedroom and in separate stains found in OJ's bed, foyer, and bathroom. When tested, like, like I say, littering evidence around the place. When tested, all of these samples came back as a mixture of OJ's blood and the blood of the two victims. Oh my god, this is a fucking lock-in. What's happened? This was except for a pool of blood that was discovered at the crime scene some distance from the bodies. The police believed this to have belonged to the murderer, and when tested, it came back with 95.5% accuracy that the blood was in fact OJ's. Wait, how can you just have 95.5? Isn't it like, well, it's his DNA or it's not? I guess it could have degraded or something. Secondly, OJ's own team asked him to take a polygraph test in which he was asked if he ever thought of or did kill Nicole or Ron. 
Yes, polygraph tests are infamously untrustworthy. Having said that, OJ failed by 24 points, which is the maximum degree of failure. Yeah, I'm willing to entirely discount that because I've made videos about polygraph machines and it is a nonsense science. It can't be believed. I'm happy to just entirely throw that out. There's, uh, there's, a, there's blood, which is his blood with the mixture of the victims. You know what is, is science that is true? That. That's something we know, unlike bullshit polygraphs. Thirdly, the police produced a witness who claimed that she had not only seen OJ in the Bronco on the day of the murder, but that she saw an angry OJ driving away from Nicole's residence. Oh, and you've also got an eyewitness thrown in as well? Holy shit. This was a groundbreaking piece of evidence that the prosecutor's office refused to use. What are you up to, prosecutor's office? What was that thing you didn't use earlier? There were some big figures like, nah, we don't. We didn't use that. We cocked up. And now you're refusing to use an eyewitness? The reason given by Chief Prosecutor Marcia Clark was that the witness had sold her story to newspapers and that made her untrustworthy. How? I mean, I guess so. But, like, there's a difference between selling your story to a newspaper and then being in court and having to swear on a Bible. Like, if you perjure yourself, you're going to get in big-ass trouble. If you lie to a newspaper, the newspaper's going to be like, bro, now we have to issue a retraction, not cool. We're going to sue you and we want that money back. You perjure yourself? That's, uh, that's a bigger deal, guys. <laughs> However, it should be noted that she only sold this story after coming to the police. Guys, get your shit together. Fourthly, bloody shoe prints were found at the crime scene, and inside the white Bronco, both shoe prints were measured to be a size 12 Bruno Magli shoe. The prosecution did not raise the make of shoe or the shoe print found at Nicole's house in the criminal trial, but these shoe prints were raised in the civil trial. Either way, it was uncovered at the civil trial that OJ did in fact wear, drumroll please, that's right, size 12 Bruno Magli shoes. For some reason, I know a tiny detail about this case. Didn't he say that he'd never see, be seen dead in shoes like that? He was like, no, 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 I'd never wear shoes like that. Those are horrible. And then, like, photos emerge of paparazzi of him wearing those bloody shoes or something like that. Mental. Fifthly, OJ had injuries to his right hand. This injury was first reported by detectives before also being noted by the defense's own doctors and forensic investigators. He claimed to have suffered these injuries in Los Angeles shortly before his flight to Chicago. The timing was what, well, at the exact time the murder was taking place. The timing was heavily disputed at trial, but what was undisputed was the forensic description of these wounds as compatible with wounds that would be expected to be incurred from a person defending themselves. That description, by the way, was from the defense's medical expert unsurprisingly they decided not to call him for testimony <laughs> it's like when your own expert is like bro i'm an expert i know you're paying me but bro come on look at this look at this come on <laughs> Finally, in the latter stages of the trial preparation, the defense leaked to the New Yorker that Detective Mark Furman had some skeletons in his closet. Specifically, they found a psychiatric report from 10 years prior which reported that Furman had sought help to overcome systemic issues of racial bias which he felt infected him. There was little hard evidence at the time, however. Now, don't decide yet, but does all that DNA evidence have you leaning in either direction? I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like. Obviously, like, there's racism. There is no doubt. This is the 1990s. This guy was like, I think I'm a racist. Like, uh, and good for him. Or like, I think I, I have racial bias. Sorry, I don't want to call him a racist. He, like, racial bias obviously exists and you don't have to be, uh, you can have racial bias without being a racist, obviously. But like, the DNA, my dudes, come on. Like, that is, a, you know what isn't racist? Science. Jesus. Okay, here we go. Chapter 7 Dramatis Personae Now it's time to meet the cast 
for tonight's play. We're going to start by looking at the infamous dream team, then the prosecutors, then the judge, and finally the witnesses who would build a career out of the case. I'm discussing each of these people as they each play a major part in what was to come. Robert Shapiro Robert Shapiro was, at the start of the trial, the leader of the so-called dream team. He had the reputation of being a lawyer to the stars and was particularly well known for the plea deals he repeatedly got for several of his clients. The fact that OJ was invited by the LAPD to turn himself in rather than be hunted down and arrested like any normal suspected murderer has been widely credited to Shapiro. Yeah, this is like, this is the sort of shit that good lawyers can get done for you. Which, uh, you know, you want an uncontaminated jury pool and stuff, and if they see you being hunted down and arrested, like, that's before the juries even be called. So they're not, like, sequestered from the media and all of that stuff. So they're going to see that, and that's not going to be, like, a good look. Whereas if he turns himself in, you know, that's going to look good for them. While at trial, Shapiro said that he believed the real argument was in the concept of reasonable doubt rather than any police conspiracy. This strategy is also widely credited for the infamous glove defense. After the trial, Shapiro would go on to author The Search for Justice, a defense attorney's brief on the O.J. Simpson case, which spoke in detail about the defense strategy, an extremely strange act for a lawyer who is generally expected to keep confidentiality. It should be noted that Shapiro, at several points in the book, states that he was never certain that O.J. was innocent. Isn't this damaging to your career? Because if I was in O.J.'s position right there, and my lawyer after... I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, Or if, I, if I'm this lawyer, right... And then I'm looking for clients and they're like, wait, aren't you the guy who represented OJ and then wrote that book talking about all that that you're supposed to keep quiet that I'm definitely like, your lawyer, <laughs> shut your mouth, you're my lawyer. <laughs> keep it quiet. That's the point. We have confidentiality. And I'm sure like he's an amazing lawyer so he knows exactly what's going on. And he probably was like, allegedly he said this. It's like, bro, <laughs> I don't want you as my lawyer if you're going to be afterwards. Allegedly this happened and allegedly that happened. When all we need to do is delete the allegedlies and that's what happens. Jesus. Johnny motherfucking Cochran. This is where I must admit a small bias. Johnny Cochran is something of a role model of mine. I have no idea who Johnny Cochran is. I'm still Johnny Cochran with a knit cap. You see, viewers, like our dearest fact boy, I'm educated in the law. Specifically, I received an undergrad, master's, and I'm now conducting a PhD in law and have also worked as a lawyer. Even though I have done all of this in England and Wales, there's not a single lawyer I have met who cannot say that they have heard of and to at least an extent admired Johnny Cochran. Wait, who is Johnny Cochran? Is he? Oh, he's, he must be one of these lawyers then. Wait, so what did he do? I've never heard of him. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Although, like, I did, like, one year of criminal law, so it's not exactly, you know, not the same amount of experience. I'd study in criminal law, like, practicing, obviously. Cochrane became the lead of the Dream Team shortly before the jury was seated and has been widely credited with those famous eight words. Oh, it's this guy! Of course! If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. And it's that rhyming, apparently. Recently touched on this in another video, where it's, like, apparently people, like stuff that rhymes people take more seriously which is a stupid human bias but this guy's a genius more commentators viewing the case credit Cochrane with bringing the wider debates about race into the case which ultimately led to a complete review of the lapd and their practices Cochrane went on great all of this is great yes i certainly seems like racism is gonna play a part of this trial but so does dna Cochran went on to represent several other high-profile clients, including successfully defending Snoop Dogg later that same year for his own murder charge. I don't even know about that. Snoop Dogg had a murder charge? Holy shit!
Despite this, he was forever known as the man who got OJ free, though this is a title I intend to dispute. Cochrane would author several books referencing the case, none focusing on the case more so than Journey to Justice, published in 1997, the same year OJ would lose a civil trial. In this book, he'd detail how the defense recognized the need to bring the wider social debates into the case and would actually speak about the key matter of OJ's potential guilt very minimally. Robert Kardashian Robert Kardashian, father of the Kardashian clan, was by all accounts a good and close friend of both OJ and Nicole's. He was invited to join the dream team by Robert Shapiro, despite the fact that he was primarily a commercial lawyer. Critics have opined that the reason for this was so that Kardashian could never be called as a character witness to OJ and Nicole's relationship. Oh my god, that is some smart lawyering right there. After the trial, Kardashian revealed that he and OJ did not speak anymore and that he doubted OJ's innocence. <laughs> <laughs> Woo-wee! Kardashian never wrote a book himself, but he did assist OJ's agent, Mike Gilbert, to write a book. The rather neutral book was called How I Helped OJ Get Away with Murder, the shocking inside story of violence, loyalty, regret, and remorse. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm going to gamble that you can probably guess what they spoke about in that book. <laughs> no shit. Oh my god, the amount of money that has been spun from this trial is absolutely wild. And yes, I'm aware of the irony of me saying that. Effley Bailey, Barry Sheck, Alan Dershowitz, Peter Neufeld, and Gerald F. Ullman. Leaving aside any associates, the above five are the remainder of the Dream Team. This is a massive collection of lawyers. <laughs> it's like, I know, uh, what's it? The, the prosecution or whatever will be, oh, what do they call it? I should know this from that TV show, Billions. Um, and also a love of that other TV show, Boston Legal. Um, the guy who prosecutes, the prosecutor for the state, state prosecutor, something like this. Like he's gonna be like, oh shit, you got like, there's just a crowd of lawyers in the court. You're like, this is gonna be an uphill battle, isn't it? Even with all this DNA, and uh, well, we know how this ends up, which is just nuts. Bailey was one of the most famous criminal lawyers of all time in America, and would be the lawyer credited with the line of investigation and questioning of Mark Furman. Bailey was brought onto the case by his good friend Robert Shapiro, who would also be responsible for disbarring Bailey for attorney misconduct in 2001 and 2003. He got disbarred twice. Wow, that's that. that their friendship turned. He was, <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, you're amazing. Come on to my, come on to my dream team." And then I'm later on, I'm going to be disbarring you. Shit. Sheck was a forensics expert brought onto the team, would be responsible for dealing with the DNA evidence. He was also the co-founder of the now world-famous Innocence Project, which focuses on acquitting death row inmates using DNA evidence, which is great. Like, I like that. Alan Dershowitz is probably the man who requires the least introduction. The world-famous professor of Harvard Law was originally slated to appear for the prosecution until he was convinced by a generous donation made by Shapiro and Bailey. He has since gone on to represent Assange, Epstein, Weinstein, and Trump. Good company for OJ then, allegedly. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. You're like the uh, the attorney for villains, allegedly. Also, why do we have to be like, it was a generous donation? It's like they gave him money. It's like he's a lawyer. Of course he likes money. It's what lawyers do. They represent people and they get paid lots of money. There's nothing wrong with that. Neufeld was a lawyer brought on alongside Sheck to assist him in the role. He would co-found the Innocence Project and largely serve to delve into the more technical matters of the DNA evidence. Ullman was part of Cochrane's law firm and mostly did behind-the-scenes work. However, he was credited for inventing the If the Glove Doesn't Fit, You Must Acquit line and passing it on to Cochrane. Every member of the Dream Team would go on to publish books about their roles in the case. Because of course they did. Are you not rich enough already? You're mega high-powered lawyers. Do you really need to publish a book? This is 
is extremely abnormal for lawyers, but OJ apparently waived his privilege to allow for it. Oh, okay. Well, Liam, you could have mentioned that earlier, because I was all like, is this okay? I mean, surely this is a bit sketchy. But OJ waived his privilege, so fine. Go for it. Go nuts. This completely changes my opinion on this. It's probably a rare time where they do get to write about being a lawyer. They all gave roughly the same story, except for Dershowitz, who called the case boring. All of the lawyers did agree, though, about the intense conflict that was ever-present between Shapiro and Cochran. Marcia Clark and Chris Darden Marcia Clark and Chris Darden were the prosecutors brought onto the case, originally alongside William Hodgman, who had to later be removed for medical reasons. I'm going to cover each briefly so as not to spoil anything. Clark was a 16-year veteran prosecutor, and it was her idea to bring her lifelong friend Darden to the team. At the time of the trial, she was going through a messy divorce, and this would become the focus of the media's attention only a few weeks in. She is also notable for having to cancel a court date due to childcare issues, something that is never done, and for the unfortunate fact that the media seemed to care more about how she looked than what she said. Wait, that seems super unreasonable. Like, I mean, <laughs> whilst I'm what a controversial statement, the media were being super unreasonable. How about you fuck off out of her personal life and let her do her job and judge her on the merits of that? Yeah? Hey? Not too hard, is it, media? Come on. Stop being such a piece of shit, and let's get on with it. After the trial, Clark would become a best-selling author and would sign a deal rumored to be worth about $4.2 million. Wow! The subsequent book, without a doubt, would go on to become the best-selling book to result from the case. Good. Clark would resign shortly after the case as a direct result of the verdict. Wow. Next, we have Christopher Darden. I want to stress that he, in my opinion, is the worst lawyer of all time, excluding lawyers who have conducted illegal activity. Wow, that is a statement, especially from a another lawyer. <laughs> I mentioned earlier how many claim that Cochrane is the man who got OJ off, but I instead believe that it was Darden. Although I am not going to spoil the exact cock-up he made, you're going to have to wait for that. I will say, though, that Darden makes the average police officer we deal with on casual criminalists seem like Sherlock fucking Holmes. Yeah, and often. I mean, I feel like on casual criminalists, because of the nature of what we do here, we see, like, really terrible police work, and then we also see really amazing police work. It's rarely, like, because it's not so interesting, it's like, yeah, the police did an alright job, it was fine, it wasn't stellar, it was just a bit average, it was boring. It's always like, and then he ate the evidence, or like, and then he cracked the case wide open. It's always like Sherlock Holmes, or like, uh, famous incompetent detective. Was that is that guy from the, that that cartoon with the Pink Panther? Is he like no? He's good, isn't he? Famous incompetent. It doesn't matter. Look, I'm gonna, I'm trying to search for an analogy live. It's not going to work out because I have a small brain. Darden had spent previous years working in the Special Investigation Division (SID) of the Los Angeles Prosecutor Office. This meant he mostly worked with corrupt cops and internal affairs claims. He had little criminal trial experience and was brought onto the case by Marcia Clark. Despite my feelings about him, I won't deny that he had a tough time. Cochrane and several in his camp made consistent references to race as an issue in the trial. As a result, Darden, who is an African-American man, was ostracized from the community after the trial. Darden claims that he quit from the prosecutor's office, but official records, along with several witnesses, show him as fired. Some have claimed that this was due to an inappropriate relationship that he had with Clark. Uh, wait, who's Clark? Oh, Clark's the other prosecutor. Whoa, okay. He now appears quite regularly as a legal commentator on several American networks. Well, it seems everything worked out for him. It seems like things, even though they lost this case, I'm sure he's got some lucrative TV appearances. Uh, a woman allegedly had a $4.2 million book deal, which uh, that was probably just the advance and shit, wasn't it? It's like, that book's still selling. She's still making 
bag. Darden would go on to write more books than any other participant of the case, often accusing the defense of some form of misconduct. Judge Ito. Judge Lancey Ito, husband to Margaret York, who was the first female police officer to reach the rank of deputy chief in Los Angeles, was by all accounts a judge who very much enjoyed the cameras. Overall, Ito was slightly criticized for his overuse of sidebars, but considering the attorneys involved, the criticism has also largely been considered as overblown. Yeah, you've got like 900 lawyers in the court. Of course, there's going to be lots of sidebars. Ito is unique in this case, however. He is the only member of the trial's main cast that has never written a book about his involvements. Wow. The reality stars. I wanted to title this section the trash but i felt that was too offensive to garbage cans and daily mail readers faye resnick kato kalen and chris jenner mother of the kardashian clan and by all accounts the founder of their fame all of these names would find their start in the oj trial the first two taking a large role in the trial itself kato through his testimony and resnick through constant interviews many also blame these reality stars for being responsible for how the media has treated the case ever since. Now that we are finally done with what might be the longest introduction ever in the Simon Whistler cinematic universe, yeah, we gotta be what? Good, like nearly an hour in. <laughs> is a long setup but i don't feel like we're in the introduction i found this has been like i don't know i'm i'm gripped by this maybe people are less gripped because they're like Simon, we know all of this we know about oj simpson and i'm like of course a lot of this now that i read it i'm like oh yeah that's familiar oh yeah i did know that like even reading this kardashian thing i i, I do vaguely know that um what's her face um chris jenner is like one of the og kardashians right something like that so let's begin finally with the trial Chapter 8 The Opening Statement and Character Witnesses. And so, finally, court is in session. Be upstanding. <laughs> it's time to run you through the complete prosecution case as it was presented at trial. I want to remind you, though, that you should wait until the end of both prosecution and defense cases before making up your mind. In exchange, I promise not to sequester you for eight and a half months, like happened to the real life jury. We talked about this before. Imagine, like, fortunately, where I live, they don't have jury trials. <laughs> so it's like, this, I'm never going to be called up. Can you imagine? It's like, I just imagine, like, eight and a half months of my life. It'd be like, I'd be so fucked. They'd be like, you can't communicate with the media. Bro, what I do is media. Like, what what happens like to people's careers and stuff if you're like some youtuber like if i was american or whatever and i was on this trial be like my career would be screwed you can't not make content for eight and a half months and then expect your career to be there when you get back no one's gonna give a shit about you it's youtube and i'm not eight and a half months recorded ahead on my channels maybe two months the prosecution began their case with Darden beginning their opening statement. Darden began with the respectful framing of the families of the victims as the most important parties of the case. This is a deeply important idea that would become so lost in media reporting of the case. Darden would then go on to introduce to the jury that OJ had previously abused Nicole, that he was possessive over her, and that he killed her out of jealousy because he couldn't have her. In Clark's half of the opening statement, she set out what I've already told you about the forensic evidence. Specifically, she told the jury how there was a trail of blood beginning at Nicole's house and ending in OJ's bedroom, with key pools of blood found at the gate to Nicole's house in the white Bronco and on those famous gloves. Oh my gosh. If I was in the jury, and I know, I know Liam's like, hold your judgment to the end, but I'm just like, I'm sitting in that jury, in that little jury wooden box or whatever, like listening to this shit, I'll be like bro defense you got some work to do because i'm already ready to be uh, to, to um deliberate 
Clark did not mention that this blood was OJ's, though. An objection from the defense prevented her mentioning this until a forensic expert was called. Next, we get to the defense opening statement, delivered by the well-anticipated Cochrane. It was known that Cochrane had originally trained as an ordained minister, and as such, the media had long awaited his opening statement, knowing he knew how to play to a crowd. Cochrane, by all accounts, disappointed everyone with his opening statement. However, some have suggested that this was a trap laid for the prosecution. Cochrane took the opportunity to remind the jury, as I wish to remind our audience, that to find OJ guilty, you must be certain beyond all reasonable doubt. That means that if there is a single doubt in your mind at the end of the trial, then you must acquit him. Cochrane also laid the groundwork for the entire defense strategy with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I just watched a TV show called Anatomy of a Scandal, and I was, there's a, it was a courtroom, the, the like latter half of the show was like a courtroom drama. And the defense lawyer was just always talking about these things. And I just thought they did a terrible job because they just never mentioned the reasonable doubt. Like the whole thing. And I feel it was just to make the show more dramatic because if the lawyer had just gone, you've got to do it beyond all reasonable doubt. You do know that, right, jury? All reasonable doubts. Like, if I have even sprinkled a tiny doubt into your mind and you're like, yeah, but maybe, then you must find them not guilty. And they just never mention this. And I'm like, what are you doing? This would be the first thing you should mention. Come on now. Because <laughs> your case is open and shut. You just have to sow a tiny little seed of doubt. Cochrane also did briefly speak about a witness and show a second trend that would populate the case. The witness was Marianne Gurkus. She was a passerby who had seen Nicole's condo on the night of the murder and approached the police soon after it had been sealed off. Cochrane explained how Gurkus had been waved away and told, Oh, we've got it wrapped up, thus criticizing the LAPD for choosing a suspect immediately. This led to heavy criticism of the prosecution as Cochrane had clearly introduced witness testimony in his opening statement. Yeah, bro, bro defense where's your objections and that they're objecting to you being like objection you can't say that's oj's blood and it's not like opening statements and they're like you have to wait for a forensic person and now they're like they're not objecting to the fact that he's already talking about witnesses come on come on defense let's go this was a matter that could and should have been objected to exactly in fact, the entire prosecution effort would be criticized that day. In total, they made 32 separate objections to Cochrane's opening statement, of which most were of a purely procedural manner, stating that Cochrane was quoting the wrong page numbers or wrong sources and ignoring the obvious argumentation that he had introduced. Yet what are you doing? Just be like, let it go. Those aren't important things. What's important is he's introducing a witness. <laughs> I'll briefly explain to any non-lawyers out there in an opening statement, you're meant to outline what you will present, but not argue the evidence. At several points. I feel like outlining what you would present, the blood thing would be like, and we're going to talk about how there was blood there. It is both the blood of the victims and the alleged perpetrator today. That's outlining what you're going to talk about. You're not introducing evidence. But talking about the witness, that is way, way closer or way more over the line, no? <laughs> Okay, just me. At several points, Cochrane argued over the validity of evidence and introduced his evidence as fact. For example, the only evidence they could introduce was the uncontroverted evidence that I ran by you today. Beyond that, they'd be limited to say, we have a witness who will testify as to how the LAPD had already made up their minds, not say exactly what would be said, like Cochrane got away with. Despite this, Cochrane skillfully avoided these limitations, and the prosecution did nothing to punish him for it. Yeah, and Cochrane knows exactly what he's doing like he's this legend lawyer he knows he's he must be expecting them to object 
And he'll just be like, retracted, or whatever, you know how they do it. But they don't even object. He must be like, on that first day, walking away, he must, like, he must be like, guys, I know it seems bad. We've got this in the fucking bag, mate. So, at the end of opening statements, we have a prosecution who has set out O.J. Simpson as the abuser that he undeniably was and told the story of how he was, by all accounts, possessive of Nicole. In response, Cochran got away with outlining the exact testimony that would later be given by witnesses as to the LAPD making up its mind. Cochran would also briefly touch on the theory that Colombian drug lords had sent Hintman to kill Nicole, but we'll touch on that later. I mean, anything, just throw it in there, because... It brings it back to that reasonable doubt thing. It's like, okay, that does seem a little bit unlikely. But is it that unlikely? It's like, yeah, is that unlikely? How sure are you? It's like, well, I'm mostly sure. Well, that's not that's not beyond all reasonable doubt, is it? Is it? You must acquit. Either way, on the 31st of January 1995, the prosecution was ready to call their first witness, Sharon Gilbert, a former 911 operator. Gilbert was a sign of the strength to come in the early prosecution cases. She wasn't actually called to give testimony. She was instead called to legitimize evidence. You see, a lawyer cannot testify and can also not play an audio or videotape to the jury. They have to ask a witness to verify what the tape is, and then they can ask the court to play the tape. Only can they then ask the witness about the tape. Questions like, what did you hear on that tape? As such, the prosecution used Gilbert as a witness to play the tape of an incident that occurred on 1st of January 1989 when OJ viciously attacked Nicole and she called 911 begging for help. This was the tape that would go viral and would paint OJ as a violent abuser. Darden would also skillfully question Gilbert on the reluctance of the police to send any officers, thus demonstrating that not only did OJ have a violent past, but that the police seemed to be far from OJ's enemies. But again, I just come round to this and it's like, I don't think Cochrane's opening statement was particularly persuasive. I just think he got away with so much that it felt confidence. But this early stuff from defense is so, uh, from the uh, prosecution, sorry, is so solid. Cochrane would question Gilbert, specifically pointing out that she couldn't see what was going on on the other end of the phone and therefore didn't know what was going on. This error of judgment would allow Gilbert to reply, no, but you could hear the hits on the tape. The theme presented by Gilbert would be continued over the next dozen prosecution witnesses, with Nicole's sister Denise Brown and OJ's own friend, former LAPD officer Ron Shipp, also being called. All testified and agreed that OJ and Nicole's relationship had been abusive, and all agreed that OJ was the abuser. This seems to be locked in beyond doubt. Like, in my opinion. Importantly, Denise also reported that when she saw OJ at his daughter's dance recital on the day of the murder, he looked scary and like a madman. Shep, who had been with OJ on the 13th, also testified that OJ seemed to care little about the death of Nicole, even claiming that OJ told him that he had wished for such to happen. Oh my lord. <laughs> I'm sitting in that jury box again, and I know, Liam, you told me to wait until the end, but I can't. The format of the show is I comment throughout it. I'm sorry, I'm gonna do it. And I know everyone in the audience is also thinking, you must be thinking the same thing as me right now, right? It's like, if you're in that jury box, you're like, it's locked in. It's 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 done. This is it's done. It's done. Nothing that Cochrane guy can say is gonna is gonna get him off. But somehow it happens. Let's continue. This string of questioning closed the prosecution's line of argumentation as OJ's character, and for many, closed the first chapter of the trial. Now, we can see clearly that the prosecution got off to a good start and the fence to a shaky one. Cochrane and his co-counsel had proved mostly ineffective in cross-examining the character witnesses. We can also see from our perspective that the LAPD failed Nicole as she made dozens of 911 calls 
but nobody came to save her. Yeah, we knew that already from like the last couple of chapters or early chapters when it was just like the police just didn't do dick, which is super sad. Chapter 9. The prosecution places the pieces of the puzzle. Next, the prosecution moved on to setting the timeline of the events of the 12th. That's the murder day, right? Or the day before. They first called the aforementioned media vampire, Kato Kalin. Kalin testified to the normal schedule that OJ would follow and the specific schedule for that day. He also repeated that he had told the detectives that he had not seen OJ that day. I get the feeling because like, earlier that was so bold. It's like, it's going to come out that he did, didn't he? Is that right? I get that feeling. That's my vibe. Next, they called the witness Alan Park. Park was a limo driver and had been hired to take OJ to LAX for his flight to Chicago. Park testified that when he arrived at 10.25 p.m., there was no white Bronco out front. He then testified that shortly before 11 p.m., Park saw a shadowy figure climb over one of the walls wearing a completely black outfit and then made his way across the grass to the front of the house and entered it. Finally, Park testified that OJ exited the house a few minutes later and told Park, that he overslept. On top of this, OJ apparently carried a small black bag with him that he refused to let Park take like would normally be expected of a limo driver. That bag has never been recovered, and it was agreed at trial that it was certainly big enough to carry a potential murder weapon. After Park's testimony, Kato Kalin was recalled. I also feel like, I don't know, when I'm like taking a cab somewhere or a car or whatever, and the dude always gets out to like put my bags in the boot. I always feel like, dude, it's okay. <laughs> like, sit down, don't get out. It's comfortable. I'll put my bags in the boot. It's not a big deal. And then I always feel like slightly uncomfortable about it. But so if I was just doing this myself, and they'd be like, because there's a murder weapon in there. I was just being polite. I didn't want him to have to get up. After Mark's testimony, Kato Galen was recalled. Instead of his aforementioned story, he now testified that he and OJ had gone on a run around 9.30pm for a Big Mac and french fries, which heavily contradicted his earlier story and the story that OJ had told Park. Oh, okay. So he's basically not about... He just changed his story to say, like, no, 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 I definitely saw him at 9.30. It's like, dude, this, if it's not true... It could get you in big trouble. I don't know what the punishment for perjury is, but perjury in a murder trial where you're pretending to be a witness for a, a, an alibi for a murderer, allegedly. That's surely that's going to that's going to be fairly substantially punished because <laughs> the courts need to send a message like, bro, no, no fake alibis, fake alibi for murder jail, bitch, in my opinion. <laughs> It was also through Kalin that the prosecution introduced phone records that had showed OJ had called his girlfriend's Paula Barbieri at 10.03pm from his car phone. The defense did not cross-examine Cato and therefore did not challenge this accusation despite the fact that they now claimed OJ was in his garden practicing his golf swing at 10pm. So far, we have the prosecution establishing OJ as a serial domestic abuser, Nicole's sister and OJ's own friends have all testified that he had a mighty temper, and the prosecution had demonstrated that OJ was lying about what he had told Park and what he initially told police he was doing that night. Park's testimony set up a timeline for the events that was both compatible with the murder and the defense provided no possible reason that Park would lie. On cross-examination, they did nothing other than point out that his eyewitness testimony was based on events that happened at night, to which Park replied, pointing out that OJ's entire estate was well lit. And after all that, how could they possibly lose? It does seem to be like, mm, lock in. You got lying witnesses, you got lying um, alibis, you've got so much. There's so much. How could they possibly lose? But we know they do. <laughs> Chapter 10 The Prosecution Crumbles. 
Now we come to the textbook part of the prosecution case. And when I say textbook, I mean textbook. There is not a single book I've read on how to deal with a witness in a criminal case which does not reference what the prosecution was about to do and why it was a catastrophic failure. To begin their case for tying Simpson to the murders, the prosecution began to lay out the airtight DNA evidence that they had. However, there was a major issue. DNA evidence was new. Oh god, it is. It's the 90s, isn't it? It's not going to be like, now we know! Like. DNA. There are companies that will like sequence your DNA and tell you about your ancestry. We're all super familiar with this. Back in the day, people were like DNA. Yeah, I mean that's it's like fingerprints or like shoe prints, right? And it's like no, 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 no. I mean maybe fingerprints, yes, but it's like this is a lock-in. You're gonna need some really good scientists or like someone to explain this to these people. It may have been in use for about ten years by the time of the OJ case, but people didn't understand what it meant. The court didn't understand what it meant. As a result, the prosecution decided that they would define exactly what DNA was. So put yourself in the position of an experienced lawyer. You want to explain DNA to a jury of people who most likely have never heard those three letters before. What do you do? If you're uh, in the prosecution, you want to make it as simple as possible. Just you've got to assume like one rule that I like follow, like a little behind the scenes thing that I do when making content and talking to my like people who write for me and stuff, is that everyone likes to feel smart and no one likes to feel stupid. So whenever I'm having something written, if I feel like the reading level's too high, I'm just like dumb it down, make it stupid. Because smart people like feeling smart, and people who need a lower reading level, well, they appreciate a lower reading level. By making something too like big brain, it doesn't help anyone. So in this, I'd just be like, follow that same rule, just dumb it down, make it as simple as possible, have a scientist on the stand who is like super good at explaining shit. Don't have someone who's like got his big thick glasses on and is super deep in the science just get like an undergraduate student like someone who understands the very basics of it and have them explain it and make them like sound good and be charming and stuff that's that would be my strategy We've done this enough, let's carry on. The prosecution decided to call criminologist Dennis Fung. He was responsible for the gathering of the DNA evidence in the case and led the team in their analysis of the DNA. Uh, I think this is a mistake for the very reason I said. You don't need a scientist here. You need an educator. You need someone who can explain exactly what's going on. You don't need someone who's way deep in it. You don't. You really don't. Now, many may say, but Liam, that sounds totally reasonable. Why not call the head of the team? And to you, I point out the simple, unfortunate fact of jury trials. Half the time, as a lawyer, we don't care what our witness says. We care whether you're likable and how charismatic you are. And as much as Fung was likable, commentators agree that Fung didn't know how to speak to normal people. Fucking nailed it, didn't I? Exactly. You need a charming educator to go in there and tell people what's up. Many journalists even failed to report on Fung's testimony for the fact that many people were apparently put to sleep by it. Yeah, if you're explaining to if the jury was made up of DNA scientists or scientists or just people with master's degrees, you'd be like, okay, we can do the old Fung thing. But when the jury is made up of peers, regular people, who are not smart enough to get out of jury duty, well then, you need you need someone who can dumb it down for them. Simple. To emphasize this point, I'm going to tell you what Fung said, and then I'm going to tell you how he said it. This will hopefully highlight why I believe, as many do, that Fung was the wrong person to present this key evidence. When asked about the DNA that had been collected, Fung told the court the chances of each individual piece of DNA evidence belonging to anybody other than OJ. For the drop of blood found near the bodies of Nicole and Ron, the chances of the owner of the blood not being OJ, who has a rare blood type, was 1 in 170. 
million. <laughs> I felt like one in 170 is enough. And you just throw on the million at the end. And it's like, there is no chance. That is basically zero. The chances of the blood on the socks coming from any other person, OJ, was one in 6.8 billion, which is probably the population of the world at the time. So it's like the zero, the zero zero chance. This is testimony that was later repeated by Robin Cotton, a member of Fung's team, called specifically because of the mess the defense made of Fung. You just need to be, I don't know, if I was presenting this, if I was the person who was like presenting the DNA evidence, I'd be like, guys, it's one in 6.8 billion. That's the odds of it being someone else. You know what the population of the world is? 6.8 billion. You know what that means? It's fucking his, isn't it? Boom! <laughs> and the judge would be like, language. <laughs> and I'll be like, it is though! Guilty! Barry Sheck was the counsel called to cross-examine Fung, and luckily the prosecution had prepped Fung for this, ensuring that he knew everything he had to about the science. Unfortunately, Sheck understood the jury and knew he'd never win on the technical details, so he instead attacked the easier-to-understand issues. He quizzed Fung about the picky details gathered in the police report, the main question being what days each piece of evidence had been gathered. Eventually, this culminated in a question Sheck posed on the bloody socks. In this question, Sheck asked Fung to examine the socks. It had been established that the defense was trying to say that the DNA evidence had been faked. He asked Fung if any blood was visible. Fung replied, No and he explained nothing else you just need to be just be like it doesn't need to be visible dna is very small and you don't need to be able to see it with your stupid human eyes for it to be there it's science maybe if you would studied science instead of law you would understand this stuff but you don't <laughs> and that's okay it just matters whether the jury do bung come on man <laughs> It's not hard. This is important as the blood found on the socks was a microscopic trace. However, this does not diminish it as a valid piece of DNA evidence. Of course it fucking doesn't. All it means is that the blood is not visible to the naked eye. And after Fung had been questioned for hours, he simply forgot to mention this fact. No. Throughout Sheck's cross, we see consistent moments like that above. In the eyes of the jury, Frang was found to constantly contradict himself, and Sheck knew this, and he played it perfectly. It was at the end of Sheck's questioning when he asked Fung where he was when Detective Anata had given him OJ's blood sample. Fung shortly replied that he was at the scene of the crime. Sheck clarified that he was not at the secure laboratory with a sense of disbelief in his voice, and Fung confirmed that no, he was not in the lab. However, this was completely normal practice, and it didn't jeopardize the evidence at all, but because Fung was flustered, he failed to clarify any of that. As Fung ended his testimony, his answers prompted a facepalm from Marcia Clark. He then promptly made his way to the prosecution bench, where he hugged and shook the hands of both attorneys, before then repeating the handshakes and hugs with the defense attorneys. I have no words, my dude. What are you up to? Why are you hugging people in a courtroom? Just leave. Just leave. Just please leave. And don't then shake the fucking hands of the defense. Good lord. Cochrane would later say in an interview that Fung was best, one of the best witnesses for the defense. At the end of the day, the prosecution tabled a motion to have additional forensics experts called, which was granted. No longer was the prosecution spinning the tale of an abuser turned murderer. Now they were trying to prepare damage control for what seemed to many to be incompetent forensics work. Oh no, this is the problem though. I'm sure Fung is an excellent scientist. But he's not excellent in a courtroom. God damn. 
The prosecution did claw some reliability back when they called Colin Yamauchi, a criminalist who had performed a PCR analysis. This form of analysis spits one DNA sample into thousands and was even more concrete and, importantly to this case, he was far easier to understand as agreed upon by commentators. Rather than throwing around scientific jargon and numbers, he decisively stated that OJ, Nicole, and Ron's blood had been found in OJ's bedroom, on the gloves, in the Bronco, on the socks, and that the drop of blood on the floor at the crime scene was beyond all doubt oj's yeah forget it you don't even need to mention the numbers just be like it is beyond all doubt it is his blood and then the prosecution will come up and they'll be like so uh, are you sure it's his blood and he'll say yes how sure well about one in 6.8 billion chance of me being wrong so pretty fucking sure mate on cross, the defense attempted to claim that Yamuchi was guilty of unsafe handling of the evidence and that he had contaminated it. In order to counter this, Yamuchi carefully pointed out how he had not only followed procedure, but that the defense forensics expert had been guilty of questionable conduct with the items. Oh shit, turning it back around! It was now that the prosecution decided that arguing over the scientific merits of DNA was getting nowhere and they needed to cut off the train of thought. They realized that the defense was trying to present this entire case as a setup, and they tabled the motion to have their witness list amended to call the detective which discovered the vital second glove, the evidence that would surely convict OJ. They called Detective Mark Furman. Before they called Detective Furman, though, we must call yet another quick sidebar to discuss what many see as one of the worst cock-ups of this entire case. Rosie Greer was a former NFL player turned pastor who visited OJ in jail. Greer came to the police not long after visiting OJ and told them that OJ had confessed to him. Not only that, but a guard was willing to back Greer's testimony to that effect. This had been a matter that the prosecution had raised before the jury was seated, but the motion itself was not decided. Ito instead decided to wait until the matter became pertinent to the case to rule on it, meaning that he wouldn't decide on it until Greer was called. However, it was known that OJ's lawyers intended to challenge the calling of Greer as a witness, claiming that any such admissions would be covered by a concept known as priest-penitent privilege. Wait, just because, oh, I see, because he did become a pastor. So it could, uh, fair enough. I mean, it feels like bad. I know it's not bad. This is how it should be. Like if you're, if there is privilege and i don't know if there is between a priest and a parishioner or whatever i think there is right if you confess something they, there's like a privilege a legal privilege there where they can't be forced to testify if oj confessed to him thinking this well, he probably shouldn't have had the bloody guard listening should he but i think that should be covered by privilege it would be like confessing about some yeah no this should be covered by privilege i'm sorry but this shouldn't be admissible if that's what the situation is Nevertheless, this privilege only protects priests from being compelled to be called. It does not stop them from being allowed to testify. Oh, I see, of course, because he wanted to. Um, wait, that seems insane. No, 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 this should still not be allowed. It, it protects priests from being compelled to be called, but it does not stop them from being allowed to testify. It fucking should. Like, if the privilege... If you have privilege between your doctor or your lawyer or whatever and you... That should prevent them from testifying. It shouldn't be about whether they want to or not. It should be not allowed, surely. Which means for anybody keeping track, not only did the prosecution know that the defense wouldn't be able to stop them calling Greer, they knew that the defense was not claiming Greer was lying, but rather that the admission was inadmissible. Despite this, the prosecution decided to withdraw their request to call Greer, meaning that so far they had refused to call an eyewitness, introduce evidence that OJ had been trained with the exact murder weapon that was used, and refused to rely on evidence as minor as a full fucking admission. That 
is insane. Also, OJ, what the fuck are you up to in prison? Assuming this happens allegedly, don't admit to your crimes. I don't care if it's to your lawyer, to your doctor, to your priest. If you just just don't do it. Just be like, nah, I'm innocent. 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 Just keep that line going. Just do that. Just don't. Don't confess to your crimes. Just don't. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Do not do it. Unless you're like plea bargaining or um, pleading guilty. Don't do it. I disagree with the defense's idea that there was a conspiracy because if there was, it certainly wasn't to prosecute OJ. Disclaimer, I'm not alleging a conspiracy by the prosecution, but come on. At this point, you must be thinking, how could it get any worse? Well, it's time to see the man who got OJ free. Chapter 11, The Man Who Got O.J. Free As we return to the trial, the prosecution called Mark Furman, who was the detective who found the key bloody black leather glove at O.J.'s Rockingham mansion. On questioning, Furman placed the exact location of the gloves, where they were found, and confirmed that the chain of evidence had been properly followed. He also put an end to the defense's line of argument that alleged that the LAPD had instantly decided O.J. was the killer and refused to change their minds. Furman did this by pointing out that he had reasons for his suspicions because he had been the detective who had actually responded to a domestic violence call between Nicole and OJ. Wait, I don't get it. Doesn't that mean he's more likely? He says he d he dispelled this notion that the police r were railroaded into thinking OJ did it. And he's like, yeah, no, we didn't do that because I knew OJ was beating her. Wait, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem to help your case at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> all was going well until F. Lee Bailey asked Furman whether he had ever used the N-word, except that he didn't say the N-word. Furman denied the claim, and Bailey sat down, a solid, smug smile on his face. Bailey would later describe his thought process. From that moment on, Furman had a rope around his neck, but he had no clue. Furman was painted in the media as a surefire racist, thanks to the New Yorker article that the prosecution had seeded back at the start of the trial. Everyone was asking what the defense knew that the prosecution and the public didn't. This even led to the televised dramatization of the trial, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, calling him a flat-out Nazi. The validity of these claims aside, that one statement from Furman would lead to the only successful prosecution stemming from this entire trial, one for perjury. Why didn't you just say, I don't know? Like, just be like, I don't know if I've ever said that. I don't remember every word that I've ever said. <laughs> don't lie. Don't lie. So I've already given one free lesson, especially when it's like, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not the defendant here. Like we always say, like, uh, <laughs> it's obviously not legal advice, but yo, if the charge for perjury is less than the charge for like fucking murder, you're going to lie on the stand, aren't you? Because that's what's up. Um, but if you're a detective, don't lie <laughs> just to get the man, because then you can get a charge for perjury, which is going to be bad for you as a policeman. So, I've already given one free lesson to the budding lawyers out there. It's really important to carefully select your witnesses so that they're likable. Juries want to be entertained, and you need to make sure that your witness knows that. There is one more important lesson, though. The most important lesson of criminal advocacy. Never let the defendant grandstand. This has been the first lesson taught to trainee lawyers since defendants began to take the stand. Apparently, a lesson that Darden must have missed. Later in the trial, Darden led the questioning of a second set of forensic witnesses, which focused on the specific detail of those famous black leather gloves that were stained with the blood of O.J., Nicole, and Ron. He had established that the exact gloves found had to be a pair, that Nicole had purchased an exact copy of those gloves for O.J., and that they matched the measurements of O.J., or at least they should. 
Darden sensed that the jury was losing interest and asked Clark if they could make a show of themselves. He wanted O.J. to put the gloves on. However, Clark immediately vetoed this as she knew what would happen if they allowed that. She reminded Darden that she was in charge and that if he wanted to entertain the jury, they'd find another way. Yo, Darden, she's got to be like, No! <laughs> He's going to say the glove doesn't fit, isn't he, Darden? Dummy. Then the fateful day came on June the 15th, 1995. It was a warm day filled with exceedingly boring DNA evidence. Several of the jury members were yawning and one was even reported to have taken a quick nap, so Judge Ito called an early lunch just so people could wake up a bit. It was on that lunch that Robert Shapiro made his way over to where the evidence bags were kept, and as the DNA had already been collected, they were not sealed. It was then that Shapiro, without any other attorneys present, tried on the gloves. He would later report that the gloves barely fit him and that OJ's hands were massive and much bigger than his own hands. That was the moment that the defense knew they could get OJ off. Soon after returning to the defense table, F. Lee Bailey sought out Darden and taunted him. He allegedly said that if he didn't ask OJ to put on the gloves, then Bailey would. Although this is only alleged by Darden, who alleged quite a lot about what was about to happen. The recess ended, and everybody filed into the courtroom. No sooner had Judge Ito sat down than Darden had stood and called OJ to the stand to try on the gloves. The cameras caught the shock present on Clark's face and the look of triumph on the defenses. Only that morning had Cochrane been fiercely fighting against OJ trying on the gloves. I can only imagine how Darden felt when he saw Cochrane stand, a subtle smirk on his face, as if to say, No issues, Your Honor. At that moment, Darden had to know, and he fucked up the easiest case of the century. As for what happened next, I think you all know. OJ made his way over to try on the gloves, neither fitting easily. Darden, never one to accept utter defeat, attempted to grab OJ's hands and pull the gloves on further. However, he caught himself and instead asked Judge Ito to order OJ to pull them on further. Ito did, but it made little difference. Many have suggested in the years since, none louder than Darden, that the gloves did fit and that OJ was acting, or that the storage of the gloves had resulted in them shrinking. Darden even once suggested that Shapiro changed the gloves for a smaller pair while he was trying them on. However, that theory would be seemingly impossible in a court filled with bailiffs. Either way, what happened had happened. The prosecution still had airtight evidence, but nobody cared anymore. The gloves simply did not fit. From that day onwards, every trainee lawyer would be taught that it doesn't matter how airtight your case is. The jury doesn't remember the victories. It only cares about the cock-ups. Chapter 12. The defense begins to struggle. On the 10th of July, the Dream Team took center stage. For the first motion, they took the jury on a field trip. This field trip took the jury to Nicole Bundy's Avenue home before then moving to OJ's Rockingham house. Is that? I didn't realize that happened. They take the jury out on a little journey? Of all the legal dramas I've seen, I don't think I've ever seen that happen. The intent by Judge Ito was that this would give the jury a better idea of placing the evidence that they were going to see. It is accepted by most that it did not. Nicole's home had been cleared of all belongings and was more of a shell than a house. The jury wasn't even allowed outside for too long due to the media. This meant that they spent most of their time inside the empty home, whereas Nicole and Ron had been murdered in an alleyway just outside. The trip to Rockingham wasn't any better for the prosecution. The defense had taken many of OJ's belongings away, including several pictures of OJ with his majority white golfing buddies. Cochran also made sure that a Bible was installed on the front living room's table, and it has since been accepted by most that this was nothing short of a PR stunt by the defense, a PR stunt that the prosecution didn't make any objections over. Object to shit! Come on! The defense knew that they would have an uphill battle, as the DNA was damning, even if they had presented the theory that the DNA was corrupted. 
in the chain of evidence. Not only that, but OJ's character had successfully been assassinated by the prosecution. The tape they played with their first witness had finally and certainly reached its intended audience. So, they had to hit back with some emotion of their own. Their first witness was Arnell Simpson, OJ's eldest adult daughter. Arnell was asked to testify as to OJ's mental state on the 13th of June, the day that he found out about the murders. She testified that he was distraught, emotional, and out of control. The testimony was then backed up by the testimonies of OJ's mother and sister. Again, these people are, are not without bias. They're not are they they're really rely are they reliable witnesses? This was not enough for the defense, though, as as you may recall, OJ's close friend Ronald Shipp had previously testified that OJ was not only frequently violent to Nicole, but that he was emotionless on the 13th. Shipp would also say that OJ told him on the 13th that he dreamt about killing Nicole. You see, OJ's close friend saying this, that he's guilty, carries a, or like that he, sorry, not that he's guilty, that he was emotionless and all of this stuff, is much more, he's got, he's his friend. He should be lying. He should be saying the opposite. He should just be like, no comments. Or like, no, it's great. Because that seems to be in his best interest. But he's speaking against his friend's best interests here, which makes him more reliable. Whereas it's like, no, his mother said he was fine. His mother said he was really upset. It's his mum! This was a major problem for the defense, and they wasted no time in solving it. Cochrane pushed Arnell to tell the jury about Ship. Specifically, Arnell told the jury that she had seen the married man in the jacuzzi at Rockingham with a woman with dirty blonde hair, the same hair color as Nicole. Arnell also provided testimony that confirmed Ship was at Rockingham, but said that he was too out of his mind drunk to have properly judged OJ. Arnell's final testimony related to Nicole and alleged that after a breakup with OJ, that she had been on such good terms with him that she frequently was found at Rockingham, sat in OJ's lab. It should be noted with Arnell's testimony that much of her accusations about Ship are supported by OJ's mother and sister's testimony, but the only other evidence regarding Nicole that supported Arnell's testimony was given by OJ himself or by Faye in interviews after the trial. So this is all just a lot of hearsay, isn't it? The second point of attack for the defense focused on the timeline that the prosecution had set out, which resulted in the calling of several witnesses. However, this attack would go far from the plan. The day started out normally as Dan Mandel and Ellen Aronson were called to take the stand. They had both been on a date and walked past Nicole's address at around 10.30 p.m. on the night of the murders. They testified that at the time they walked past, they had nothing whatsoever, but the prosecution on cross did demonstrate that they had only been outside the house for a few minutes. Then came the mistake that the prosecution was waiting for. The defense called Robert Heidstra, who was a neighbor of Nicole's. Now, there is a maxim used by lawyers that states that you should never ask a question of a witness to which you don't already know the answer. The Dream Team were all expert lawyers, and so many were left scratching their heads over what happened next. The defense's questioning of Heidstra started out simply, asking if he had heard anything suspicious on the night of the 12th, to which Heidstra stated that he had heard something suspicious. Heidstra reported that around 10.40 p.m., which was consistent with the prosecution timeline and with the testimony of Mandel and Aronson, he had heard two men arguing quite enthusiastically. He would then go on to state that this culminated with the second man shouting something indistinguishable before hearing a gate slam and then Nicole's dog barking. 
Heidstra's testimony had been fully consistent with the bloody fingerprints which was found on the gate to the address, but had not been reported by the forensic examiners. On top of this, the forensic examiners decided not to gather DNA evidence from this blood, which had originally meant the prosecution couldn't raise it. The testimony given by Heidstraver did open this door to the prosecution, as well as introducing the bloody fingerprint. The prosecution also introduced a police report which stated that OJ could have left Nicole's address as late as 10.50 p.m. and still have made it back to the limousine in time. The defense finished off the day with a few more character witnesses who spoke about how distraught OJ had been. However, one thing was clear. Despite the glove not fitting, the case still turned against OJ on the weight of the evidence. Due to the length of Heidstra's testimony and the depth of some of the details he raised, the prosecution recalled Heidstra for Cross the next day. On Cross, Darden asked the fateful question, Did one of the voices sound black? You came up with that on your own? This question would lead to one of many explosive exchanges between Cochrane and Darden, with Cochrane stating emphatically that you can't tell someone's voice because they're black. He would then go on to accuse the statement and its sentiment of being racist. Now, to any budding attorneys out there, this whole exchange was in front of the jury. The correct decision for Darden would have been to sit down and wait for the shitstorm that Ido was sure to deliver on Cochrane for his improper objection. However, Darden didn't do this. Instead, he hit back at Cochrane, saying, If the statement is racist, then he is the racist and signaled towards Heidstra. This was the second prosecution key witness that had now been accused of racism. Yeah. And he's also being accused of racism by the side that he's on. He's a witness for the prosecution. And he's like, he's racist. He's like, you're my lawyer. I mean, not his lawyer, but like, I'm on your side. <laughs> I'm here for your side. I'm your witness. Not only this, but it was the witness was also accused of racism by someone on his own damn side, exactly. Darden then continued to say, That's created a lot of problems for my family and myself. Statements with race. Before Ito interrupted and then threatened to hold both of them in contempt if they didn't shut up. This is yet another textbook example of how Darden managed to take watertight evidence which supported his side and turn it into yet another prosecution victory. It's easy for us to understand how a case that had become so associated with race must have been difficult for an african-american attorney to prosecute but this does not excuse darden's unprofessional behavior when the recess ordered by ito had ended heistra was called back to the stand to absolutely nobody's surprise he now wished to distance himself from his previous statements and outright said that he didn't know what a black voice would sound like the final point of heistra's testimony was troubling for both sides he testified that he saw a white truck which he later agreed could have been a ford bronco leave nicole's address around 10:45 p.m however it was heading south and oj's home was to the north. The following days would only get worse for the defense. The first theory they posited was through OJ's doctor. This theory was that he had severe arthritis and would not have been capable of the murders, which was supported through the fact that both victims had attempted to defend themselves. In an extremely well-publicized counter, the prosecution played a fitness tape that OJ had filmed two weeks before the murders. <laughs> That is a solid rebuttal. In the film, OJ was seen lifting heavy items and jumping around. There was also much mockery made from a point in the film where OJ is shown to make a stabbing motion with one hand, apparently to exercise the elbow. Oh, good lord. <laughs> Prosecution, why? You're supposed to be amazing. Why introduce that when you know that stuff like this exists? So, why was this moment so easily mocked? While performing this action, OJ said to the camera, This one is particularly fun to do with the wife. No, he did it. Yes, yeah, seriously, that happened. It's already funny. Like, funny. Like, oh my god, dark humor. That he would be doing, like, a stabbing motion 
in this fitness video where they're saying like he can't do stabbing because he's got arthritis and then he's like literally saying this is fun to do with the wife bro <laughs> bro 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 no i think it's a coincidence but oh boy the final mishap the defense would endure was perhaps the strangest. Throughout the entire case, they had been asking several witnesses about Nicole's apparent drug habits, which were agreed upon by some and disputed by others. Earlier in the trial, they had also asked a very strange question to Detective Anatta, which was if he knew what a Colombian necktie was. Now, of course, we're all budding criminalists, and we all know that the necktie is the favored execution technique by South American drug cartels, and it involves when the tongue is pulled out through a person's throat. Holy shit. I don't think I knew that, but my lord. Banata being the rookie that he was, he didn't know this. I know, shock horror that an LAPD homicide detective didn't know about a thing used by drug cartels over a continent away. This was not the reason behind the defense's line of questioning, though. They had asked the question to purposefully make Vanata look clueless and it worked. Reporters stated, after the fact, that when Venata said he did not have any idea what a Colombian necktie was, the jury audibly gasped and make, made visual reactions. They just asked him a question that he might not know the answer to to make him look dumb. It's got nothing to do with the case. OBJECT! defense. <laughs> the entire time, as alluded to in opening statements, Cochran had been building the theory that Faye Resnick was the intended victim and that the killer was a hitman hired by Colombian drug lords. <laughs> You'd be like, uh, excuse me, Judge, yes, yeah, because of the, the, the hitmen, the Colombian drug lord hitmen. The judge would be like, what are you talking about, Cochrane? Sit down. <laughs> this became evidence of the prosecution when the defense intended to call Resnick to the stand, which resulted in an immediate objection. Ito granted the objection on the grounds there simply was no evidence whatsoever to say that there was a killing ordered by Colombian drug lords, and there was even less evidence that Faye Resnick was wanted dead by those same Colombian drug lords who for some reason believed that they would find Faye at Nicole's address. <laughs> yeah, I just mean, exactly. Cochrane, sit down. However, personally, I sort of believe Cochrane's defense here, assuming drug lords read books, they have a very strong reason to want Faye Resnick dead. Wait, why? What did she do? Did I miss something? <laughs> this left the defense in a precarious situation. Cochrane had promised to prove that Colombian drug lords were involved. He had even said so in the first statements that he made to the jury. And now they had been told that they simply had not laid enough foundation. As if this was not bad enough, the replacement witness for what had been planned to be Resnick's testimony were airport employees. These witnesses all testified that on OJ's return to Los Angeles, he'd been erratic at times and generally seemed to not care about the murders. Most importantly, a flight attendant who had been on board both his outbound and inbound flights testified that not only did OJ lack luggage on his return, but identified that he did have an injury on his hand on the flight to Chicago, something which contradicted OJ's story. Defense, what are you doing calling these people? They don't seem to be on your side. <laughs> don't do that. Chapter 13. Rule number one of the casual criminalist, don't record your crimes. At this point in the trial, many were expecting the defense to attempt to cut a deal. Yes, the prosecution had committed one of the worst missteps in criminal world history, but none of that changed the evidence that had already been presented. OJ had been seen acting erratically the day of the murders. His DNA was found mixed with the victims, and he had an injury on his hand sometime after his daughter's recital, but before the flight. Many believed the prosecution would be able to make a comeback. And then Mark Furman returned. The defense had recalled the detective after telling the court that they had brand new evidence that was in direct contradiction to his previous testimony. That evidence was a tape which the defense had acquired from aspiring screenwriter Laura Hart McKinney, who had interviewed Furman about 10 years before on his experiences in the LAPD. Throughout the course of this interview, Furman would not only tie the noose around his own neck, but he'd go bungee jumping with it firmly affixed. 
He both admitted to using the N-word, and used the exact word over 30 times throughout the recording, and as if it couldn't get any worse, Furman would admit that it was not only police policy to brutalize black suspects, but to also plant evidence on them. The defense had apparently discovered this through an anonymous lead from following up on the New Yorker article. McKinney, the interviewer, attempted to fight the release of her tapes, at first in fear that it would end her career. It did, but it did not prevent a Virginia court from compelling the production of a full transcript of the tapes for the defense. Now, that's all bad enough, but Furman wasn't satisfied with only racism. The piece McKinney was interviewing him over regarded the role of women in the LAPD, which was something Furman vehemently opposed. He based this on his experiences with his supervisor, Peggy York. This Peggy was later identified as Margaret Peggy York. Do you remember that name, Simon? Um... No, should I? Shit. I mean, vaguely. That's right. It was Judge Ito's wife. Oh, no. Oh, shit, dude. No, this couldn't be worse. Oh, my God. Do you remember the judge's wife was like some high up person in the police? It was Furman's boss, who he's now on tape saying that he, because of her, he doesn't think women should be in the LAPD. Dude. You've screwed yourself. You've screwed this case. This is an amazing play by the defense. Not only was she previously the boss of the key detective in the case, but she was also now a potential witness to Furman's character. No longer was only the prosecution in jeopardy, but the entire trial risked being declared null and void, even though at this point six months had been put into the case by both sides. Each had made missteps, but each was confident that no matter what happened, they didn't want to do it again. In the end, a separate judge was appointed to decide whether Ito could continue with the case at hand. Both sides argued that they believed Ito would be capable of remaining neutral if he was given censored versions of the tapes, which then led to the judge ruling that Ito could continue as normal and that he would be entitled to read a transcript of the entire tapes. Okay then. That still didn't decide the issues, however. The defense and the prosecution now had to fight to decide what the jury would actually hear. The defense wanted to play the tapes in their entirety to support their theory that Furman had in fact planted both the DNA evidence and the eponymous black glove. That's intense. You've got one of the detectives being like, yeah, 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 no, we planted evidence on black people. That was just department policy. Holy shit, of course they're gonna say that it's planted. Oh my god, this is like, oh my lord, this is a bad time. This was despite the fact that 14 other officers and forensic personnel all reported seeing the gloves before Furman even arrived on the scene. Yeah, but it's just see sowing that seed of doubt, isn't it? In contrast, the prosecution argued that the tapes were not relevant to the current case, as they were not only from 10 whole years ago, but Furman had sought professional counseling since then for this exact issue. Ito, in answering the above issue, somehow managed to piss off absolutely everyone. Of the 13 hours of tapes, he ruled that only two lines could be played in court, each line referring to Furman's usage of the N-word. These were each used for the express purpose of impeaching his earlier statement that he'd never used the term. In a much criticized addition, Ito also ruled that the tapes would be released to the press in full. Many have claimed that this second element was payback on Furman for what he said about Ito's wife, but surely if he was driven by his feelings for his wife, he wouldn't want what Furman said to get out. No, I don't think so. I think that in this case, Furman's going to look like a dick and his wife's going to look like just she was doing her job. I'm assuming that Furman is a dick. He's kind of like, in my opinion, that he's kind of like, nah, women shouldn't be in the LAPD. Look at my boss. She's an idiot. Well, she obviously rose to a position above you. In the 19... This, what, must have been the 80s? This was going on in the 90s, so the 80s as a woman? Um, 
so she's obviously just better at you better than you so i think it's just going to make her look good and him look bad. Either way, Cochrane was furious that the jury had been denied the full tapes. In his view, it was ridiculous that they couldn't mention that Furman had practically admitted to planting evidence on black suspects. Yeah, for sure. That should, like, why is that not being, why is that not admissible? It definitely speaks to his character. It was 10 years ago that he sought counseling for it, but still. Despite his objections, many law academics have supported Ito in this regard, as there is simply no evidence beyond Furman's statement that he had been trained to do that. It was a long time in the past by the time of the OJ trial, and Furman had sought counseling. Equally, Clark and Darden were furious that any of the tapes were played. This was yet another straw added to the camel's back, and from their perspective, they saw no reason that Furman's lie would impact the question of OJ's guilt. I'm kind of okay with, like, I'm pretty okay with them both not liking Ito's decision here. I get where he's coming from, and honestly, it should be the judge's job to piss off both parties if necessary. Darden even apparently urged the court to reconsider its motion, stating that the tapes could be saved for Furman's perjury trial. Oh god. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh no. Furman's got into this as a witness and he's now on trial, or he will be on trial separately. Now another lesson for all you trainee lawyers out there. If a judge rules against you, say thank you. Do not speak back to the judge. Luckily for Darden, Ito ignored his emotional outburst and moved on. The tapes would eventually be raised in Furman's perjury trial, which led to the only successful prosecution stemming from this case. Now you might be thinking, alright Liam, this is like watching a pig school school trip to a slaughterhouse. It won't get any worse, right? Well, it does. Holy shit, we've already had it. The judge's wife is a police officer that one of the witnesses was slagging off. The the crazy witness like uh, for the the dna and then the prosecution having like one witness who's against them and then the defense being like this guy's for us it's like oh my god it's a shit show as if proving that if there was a god he had a personal vendetta against detective Furman. when he was called he was appointed his own independent counsel by the policing union this counsel did as he was told and informed Furman to simply assert his fifth amendment right when answering any question however they apparently forgot to clarify that even when asserting that right you shouldn't assert it to every question under questioning for norman it was quickly established that Furman was asserting the fifth and as a result orman asked him did you ever plant any evidence in this case date Ah. This was another line of argument the defense feared had been lost thanks to the non-inclusion of parts of the tapes where Furman admitted that he had, in the past, planted evidence. Despite that, like a deer in the headlights, Furman again pled the fifth. Whereas the cock-up with the gloves was seen as the beginning of the end, this was seen as the final nail in the coffin. In a way, though, I kind of get it. Do I? Should I get it? Like, Furman's just like, I guess his lawyer's just been like, plead the fifth, mate. Just don't say anything. Just, we will cut ties with this trial plead the fifth don't make it any better don't make it any worse we're just going to deal with your trial when we get to your trial just don't say anything fifth all the way so yeah obviously it's bad for the oj trial but it's okay for him Furman did own up to this mistake as he later stated in both interviews and his own perjury trial that he had only pled the fifth as he believed he'd lose his union paid lawyer if he did not yeah fair enough Furman. i'm kind of with you on this one what we do know is that from that moment onwards Furman had stolen the case not only with the public it was even reported by the journalists in the courtroom that the jury reacted very strongly to Furman. so if the jury didn't like Furman, how did they react to the other witnesses one of the key and strangest observations was the fact that the jury 
jury did not react at all to the families of the victims, but apparently appeared very sympathetic with OJ's family. Yes, this could be misreporting, but it is widely reported and almost entirely agreed upon by those who were in court. Why? The second clear observation of the jury was that nothing put them to sleep quite like the prosecution's witnesses. Apparently, several jury members were observed yawning or just clearly losing focus. This was apparently noticed by the defense and harked upon. Witness after witness was chosen by the Dream Team for the sole fact that they knew how to speak to a jury. For sure! Like, this is like, throughout this thing, it's been like, choose your witnesses carefully. The jury is bored. They're just regular people who have been sucked away from their lives and made to sit in a box in what I'm sure is quite a warm room all day for like eight months. They're going to be like, oh my God, I'd be like, I was just not paying attention for the last 10 minutes. I know, I know. Like, you know in your minds. Like, I'm sure like this person's life is on the line. Whether they are guilty or innocent, whether they'll spend the rest of their life in prison is on me. And these other people and i'd still just be like you'd still be there being like oh man i know this but it's so hard to concentrate sometimes <laughs> nothing highlights this better than our final man who got oj free you see many commentators have blamed darden for the verdict others have blamed Furman or given the credit to cochran but newer trends in academia around the trial have blamed a man called henry lee lee was a defense forensics expert who apparently had a rapport with the jury challenging that of even cochran's he claims he had his doubts over the prosecution's dna but said no more detail about why despite this many members of the jury would later claim that lee was one of if not the most authoritative witnesses called by either side so he's just like he's probably some guy who looks super smart and he's like i have my doubts about the uh the prosecution's dna evidence can you speak to that i'd rather not i just have my doubts <laughs> he just says it like authoritative enough and people are like okay mr lee you sound smart as well as attacking the basic dna lee also assaulted the bloody fingerprints in the bloody shoe prints claiming that in his opinion the shoe print was not oj's and could not have been this was demonstrated to be false in the civil case when the victim's families carried out a forensic examination of both the shoes and oj's shoes something the prosecution apparently never thought of for some reason not like bloody shoe prints are suspicious or anything as a brief note for the scale of this cock up not only was the shoe print demonstrated to be the same size as oj's shoes but they were also demonstrated to be a rare brand which it was known that oj owned after lee it was finally time for closing arguments with the prosecution going first they started their closing by relisting all the dna evidence oj's blood had been found at nicole's house the victim's blood had been found in oj's car and at his house and all the blood samples were of at least oj and one victim not only that but oj had been identified by many of his friends as a violent abuser an abuser who was spotted with defensive injuries shortly after the murders at the time of arrest oj was found to have a fake beard loaded handgun disguise kit and five thousand dollars in cash we didn't even mention that so far did we that's crazy it seemed that he had changed both his alibi for the time of the murder and the story of what he had done before the murder the prosecution ended their closing with a plea for the jury to think of the families of ron and nicole a plea that would unfortunately fall on deaf ears the defense spoke for the last time they repeated the demonstrable racism which Furman had demonstrated for all to see they reminded the jury that the exact detective who found the glove had a history of racism and misconduct and finally reminded the jury of oj's children who they reminded the jury only had a single parent left there was one lesson the defense had mastered much earlier though they had to say something simple and memorable and they did it was in closing that johnny cochran would say the world famous line if the glove doesn't fit you must acquit
Chapter 14 Over to the Jury The trial had dragged on for eleven long months, eight and a half with the jury being sequestered, and like this script, though, the end was finally in sight. Yeah, this is a bloody long one. We're going hours. <laughs> The lawyers all went on their pre-planned holidays, expecting a month, maybe more, and the entire world was discussing the O.J. Simpson case. However, as would go on to be said, the jury seemed like they were the only people who were done discussing the case. Four hours later, they returned their verdict. They had only deliberated for two and a half hours, the remaining time being filling in the verdict forms. The lawyers filed into the courtroom, and finally the forewoman, after mispronouncing O.J.'s name, declared that he was not guilty of the crimes of murder. Instantly the question changed. It was no longer, did O.J. do it, but instead, why did the jury say he did not? Luckily, we have an answer to that question. In most countries, the verdict of a jury is a secret. For example, in England and Wales, it is a criminal offense to ask a juror for their verdict, or for a juror to reveal any other juror verdict, but that is not the case in the USA, and the interviews rolled in as fast as OJ rolled out of prison. Instantly, two things became clear. Firstly, the jury had been incited by politics, and secondly, the grasp of the jurors on the evidence was questionable at best. It's that DNA stuff. They didn't get it. That was, in my opinion, like Henry Lee and all of that stuff, blah, blah, blah. The biggest screw-up was not having the right guy explain that fucking locked-in DNA evidence, in my opinion. On the political point, juror Cassie Best made an anonymous statement to the press, which in 2016 she repeated publicly. Best claimed that the verdict was in payback for the Rodney King case, and then further claimed that this was true for 90% of the other jurors. Now, now we're going to briefly outline the Rodney King case before I explain why Best's admission unfortunately didn't allow for the prosecution to appeal the verdict. Rodney King, he's the guy who was uh, killed on tape. The police beat him to death, right? The black dude who the white police beat to death and led to the LA riots, right? He was an African-American man who on the 3rd of March 1991 was beaten by several LAPD officers while being placed under arrest for driving while intoxicated. The entire incident was filmed by a passerby and ultimately was the catalyst that caused the 1992 LA riots, resulting in 63 deaths, 2,383 injuries, and over a billion dollars in property damage. The riots ultimately led to police officers who beat Rodney King being charged with using excessive force who were then subsequently acquitted by a jury. This resulted in a sense of a racist system working to penalize and hold African Americans down for no other fact than their skin color. I've seen many people speaking about Bess's admission online. Most of them seem to be confused as to why the prosecution could not quote the anonymous statements given in the media that the jury did not acquit because they thought OJ was innocent, but acquitted out of revenge. However, there's an ancient principle of jury law dating from the 12th century called jury equity. This is the concept that a jury holds the right to find anybody innocent for any reason and was primarily championed by judges as a safeguard against authoritarianism. However, this same principle does allow a jury to acquit OJ, even if it was absolutely clear to them that he'd done it. The several interviews given by other jurors and Bess gave another picture of why the jury acquitted OJ. I've said it several times in this script how the trial was more like a TV show than it was any serious courtroom trial. This is something the jurors agreed and engaged with. The jurors apparently discussed the different personalities of the trial at length and came to one solid conclusion. They could not stand either Marsha Clark or Christopher Darden, but they found that Johnny Cochran was extremely approachable and charismatic as an individual. The jurors claimed that this distinction was not just clear in the lawyers, but also clear in their witnesses. The third reason can be given for the jury's... <laughs> so they were like, yeah, yeah, we because we liked that the, the, the defense's lawyer was cool. We liked him. He was charming. 
innocent. The third reason that can be given for the jury's decision is one that has been well documented, and that is that the jury refused to carry out their role as an act of rebellion. As I mentioned, the jurors have been sequestered for eight and a half months. That's eight and a half months without their families, their pets, their partners, their jobs, or anything. Oh, God. They can't even see their families? I always think it'd be bad not to go to work for eight and a half months. What the fuck, man? You're just stuck in a room with 11 people that you don't even know. You probably don't like. Oh, Christ. The jury even went on strike at one point and had to be threatened into court by Judge Ito, who threatened to hold them in contempt. When they did eventually come into court, they all wore black as an act of defiance. The jury's actions in the OJ case. Holy shit, this is so intense. The jury's like, fuck you. Just be like, we're ready with our decision. It's like we haven't finished the case yet. We're ready, not guilty. I want to go home. I miss Fido. The jury's actions in the OJ case are yet another part of the trial that has become a textbook, textbook definition of a rogue jury. Before we finish up on the jury, there is one thing I want to say. Many people have reported on the racial makeup of the jury, that is to say, how many African Americans were on the jury and how many white people there were. These people have attempted to explain the verdict in this manner, but I won't. This is because of the amount of modern research which has been produced on how juries work. Naming this research, all agrees that a jury will not change its decision just because its makeup is changed. I know some may find this hard to believe, but the data is clear. A majority African American jury thinks no differently than a majority white jury. So, we're not going to engage with this apparent explanation of the jury's actions. Excellent. I love it when we just look at the stats, because it's like, yeah, okay. That seems like it could be a factor, and it's like, no, statistically it's not, it's proven. Okay, cool. Very happy to move on. Excellent choice. In conclusion of the matters of the jury, irrespective of your belief on whether OJ is guilty or not, we know from what the jury said that the facts and evidence did not weigh very strongly on their decision. This is a matter which is next to indisputable for this case, and forms an important part to understanding why this case has become so divisive. Chapter 15. He did it. Of course, the aim of this episode is to inform you of all there is to know about the trial of O.J. Simpson. The task would not be done if we did not discuss the book he published on the 13th of September 2007 titled, If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. I'd also like to add that on the front cover of the book, the word if is barely visible, so it looks like it reads, I did it, Confessions of the Killer. In the book, O.J. discusses a hypothetical situation where he discusses a theory the prosecutors must have had. In other words, he is saying, well, I'm not admitting it, but if I was to, then it would go a little something like this. The majority of the book contains details of O.J. and Nicole's relationship. In this part, O.J. seems to claim that at points Nicole was the abusive one, and in fact, even in interviews, he had the gall to refer to himself as a battered husband. Holy shit, dude. Chill. Chill, man. That's not cool. Only one chapter of the book actually deals with the killings, and it contains a disclaimer which says that it is entirely fictional. Despite that, I, as well as almost everybody else, believe that the book gives us a good insight into what could have happened that night. So, let's go through the details that OJ mentions in the book. The book starts with OJ explaining that according to the prosecution theory, he must have had an accomplice. He refers to this accomplice as Charlie, and discusses at length as to how Charlie tried to talk him out of the killings. The ghost 
ghost writer of the book has gone on record saying that he believed Charlie to be someone that OJ had made up to ease his own guilt. Others have accused AC Cowlings of being the mysterious Charlie, OJ's friend who not only attempted to help OJ evade the police, but owns an identical white Bronco, something that would become important. To avoid using the word allegedly, I'm now going to tell you what OJ said must have happened on the day of the murders. This is technically a fictionalized account, so do keep that in mind. OJ stated that the night began at his daughter's dance recital, where an unnamed friend had told OJ that Nicole had gone back to her old habits of drugs and clubbing. Apparently, next, OJ called Charlie to his house, and on arrival, Charlie told OJ that the rumors he had heard were in fact true. Charlie then blamed Faye Resnick for Nicole returning to the clubbing life. Either way, OJ told Charlie to go and get his white Bronco and take him to Nicole to read her the fucking riot act. On arrival, OJ then said he saw Nicole playing music and getting candles ready like she was preparing for a date. At this point, I'd like to point out that this has been supported by evidence released in the years following the book, but these details were not public knowledge at the time of the trial. OJ then claims that he must have been surprised when Ron came through the back gate, with Ron explaining that he was there to return Nicole's mother's glasses. This resulted in Nicole coming outside with her Akita, who wagged its tail and happily greeted Ron. OJ took this as a sign that Ron must have not been a stranger. OJ then explains that this led to OJ and Nicole shouting at each other, and Ron doing some defensive martial arts move. Apparently, OJ's next memory was simply holding the knife and coming to, soaked in Ron and Nicole's blood. OJ then discussed how he gave his clothes to Charlie, but did not give his socks to Charlie as they didn't look stained. Wow, this does match up, doesn't it? This matches what forensic experts later said about the case, that the socks were not visually covered in blood, but were on the microscopic level. OJ finished, if I did it, by discussing how Charlie must have disposed of the weapon and clothes, leaving OJ to fake sleeping late before heading to his limo. Needless to say, the book caused a lot of controversy. This included OJ being sued by the Goldmans for the profits, a lawsuit which they won, and to this day they receive all of the money that OJ would from the book. Excellent! That's nice. Of prime interest, though, is the amount of detail OJ not only went into for the book, but the fact that he did not contradict a single shred of evidence in his accounts. In fact, several psychologists have gone on record stating that If I Did It is a textbook confession of a narcissistic murderer, yet another textbook example from this case. Conclusion. I want to thank everyone for sitting through what has been an absolutely mammoth piece. Normally we try to tell the story of crimes as we know they happened. That simply is not possible with today's case. We also try to focus on the victims as much as possible, which was unfortunately not possible due to the fact that the entire continuing story of this case has revolved around one man and his potential guilt. So, I decided the best way to approach this case was to arm you with enough facts and details of the case and subsequent trial so that you can form your own opinion. So, did you form that opinion? Did O.J. Simpson murder Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Lara Goldman on the night of the 12th of June 1994? Please let me know your opinion. You'll find a live chat over on the subreddit, which I will actively monitor specifically for the casual criminalist. Yeah, you can uh, find the subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Simon Whistler. And uh, yeah, there's discussion of casual criminalists on there. Often there's some other channel stuff as well, but you'll, you'll find it. I know this episode has been long, but I have also included a selection of appendices as there was so much to say about this case that it was hard to pick what to include. So I dropped some stuff down here and we will read the six appendices. They are short. Don't worry, we'll eventually be done. So am I going to give my opinion on, on this? I think it's pretty clear what I think, right? I, I mean, in my opinion, allegedly, I think he did it. I think that's what everyone thinks, isn't it? Allegedly. <laughs> Dismembered appendices. 
Appendix 1. O.J. Simpson has faced much ridicule for the aforementioned fitness state which he was involved in with the unfortunate line revolving around the stabbing action. If he did it, can you imagine if he was also the Terminator? That's right, when Arnie went to interview, O.J. Simpson was in the waiting room and was narrowly beaten out for the role. Wow. Appendix 2. As if Faye Resnick couldn't get any worse, she said on record that the reason she wrote her book is because a psychic told her that it was what Nicole would have wanted. No. No, no, no. Psychics are not real, and also Nicole wouldn't have wanted you to air all her dirty laundry after she was murdered. Faye, would she? You idiot, in my opinion. Appendix 3. Almost everybody involved in the case later sought to profit from it, mostly through book deals, but not all. In 2009, Ford re-released the Bronco. A new model isn't rare to release, so it's not that bad, right? Well, yeah, it was released on OJ's birthday. Fucking classy, Ford. Please tell me that's just a coincidence. Because if it's not, that is very, very tacky. Appendix 4. Of all the lawyers who formed part of the Dream Team, none have shown such a displeasure with the trial than that of Alan Dershowitz, the famous Harvard professor and perhaps the most famous criminal lawyer in the world. He would go on to refer to the case as not only a not that interesting case, but not even the most interesting case of my career. Appendix 5. A nice, fun, short one for you, Margaret York, the wife of Judge Ito, provided the inspiration for the TV show Cagney and Lacey. There you go. And finally, Appendix number 6. Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Lyle Goldman were murdered on the night of the 12th of June 1994, which is a fact that you would be forgiven for thinking the media had forgotten as their names are rarely mentioned particularly ron's as for their families the goldman family did successfully sue oj in 1995 for 30 million dollars however they have never been able to collect as for oj moved to florida recently after the lawsuit due to florida's extreme laws protecting property um fuck off florida what are you talking about if someone sues you florida is in america it's not like he fled to fucking belize what the fuck there is hope, however, as OJ was arrested for numerous burglaries, kidnapping, assault, robbery, and using a deadly weapon in 2007, and he then served 10 years in jail in Nevada, where he currently resides. <laughs> Nevada has notably more lax laws regarding the seizure of property, and Fred Goldman, the father of Ron's, has said that he will pursue who he believes to be Ron's killer to the ends of the earth. Excellent. Good for you, Fred. As for Nicole's family, there has been little information made public about them and their relationship to OJ. We do know from OJ's statements and interviews that very few of his children actually speak to him anymore, though. And that is the depressing note on where we finish today's video. It's been a long one. I'm looking up at the clock up there. Um, thank you for being here through all of it. Fascinating. I liked this like uh, courtroom-style one. Let's do more of these in the future if you guys like it. Let me know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. If you're watching on, um, if you're listening as a podcast, like, uh, please subscribe. And uh, I'm, I'm not even getting my words right. <laughs> this has been a really long episode. I'm just going to leave it there. Thanks for being here. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.